0: Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars, part of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast family. And on the fourth anniversary of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, great to be back with you. MP, not with us this evening. Uh, it is going to be an all-UK cast again. And I can welcome uh, to the microphone in just a moment, Stephen Kilby, my deputy editor at Daily Sports, also so the WEC correspondent for Racer.com. Before that, though, as always, it's with thanks to Cooper Tyres, with thanks to the Justice Brothers with thanks to Toronto Motorsports and to Bell Helmets USA, this is The Week in sports cars. So this week, again, it's uh, the Robin to my Batman, the, well, the jam to my buttered toast, Stephen, Stephen Kilby with us. Uh, also in the UK, but of course we are socially distanced and remote, so this has been done uh, down a Skype line this evening. How's things at your side of London, uh, Stephen?
1: Um, well, very socially distant. I've actually just come from a barbecue in the garden where we lifted up a fence panel and sat with our neighbours in each other's gardens and chatted for a barbecue, It's was actually quite a nice...
0: You nice burgled the place, of... didn't you? You burgled the place. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but, you know, we, we nicked the occasional sausage. Fantastic. Good stuff. All good here. Just getting into the late evening um, on, well, VE Day. 75th anniversary. The Victory in Europe Day, and there's been... Uh, a public holiday in the UK and all sorts of ways that people are trying to kind of keep chins up and as we work our way through to a different phase of the current crisis, not just for society as a whole, but of course the motorsport microcosm of that, we're looking to add a little bit of uh, an up to your days uh, with the weekend sports cars, but rather sadly Stephen, we started uh, the day today with um, some bad news for the Le Mans 24 Hours.
1: Yeah, it came fresh off of a day where we got some positivity for a change, didn't we, with the LMDH technical draft regulations being released. And then today we've had the sad news that Porsche is scaling back its Le Mans effort and and the two IMSA full-season core-run cars that run in GT Pro are not going to be present, which is a a real shame because we're down to nine cars in GT Pro as it stands for Le Mans. And they do add a real punch, doesn't it, when when Porsche bring four cars
0: that's right, when you get them over the, uh, the the double figures, it means that's three of the original uh, 60, how many cars this year? 62, 62. cars this year? Uh, three have now withdrawn with the SRT41, Garage 56 entry, postponing their efforts. Uh, that means at the moment we believe the three to, um, to be elevated to the, uh, the full entry should be the Spirit of Race Ferrari. That was the first reserve to start with, Duncan Cameron's car. Uh, The bike Collis is back in, uh, assuming at the moment that uh, Colin Collis and co. uh, will bring that in. And for for clarity, remember, that is the existing LMP1 car, not the future hypercar. And the third car. They have been
1: testing since, uh, since they've last appeared in a race.
0: Uh, they have been testing the LMP1 car, I think uh, running some tests from some components for their hypercar, uh, which was, by the way, due to feature the Gibson engine, and now won't, is my understanding. So we'll wait and see. Hashtag wait and see. Not the last time you'll hear that. I'm sure in the in the coming uh, many, many minutes we're going to be recording this evening. Third one is the second Edex Sport car. The interesting part there is, uh, with one car already in the race as the reigning ELMS champions, the second card will be a second Orica 7 the first time we've seen that from Sports, a team that's looking to grow. So bad news there. I frankly don't think it's going to be the last withdrawal we get from the original list. So we're going to be biting deeper, I think, into the reserve list. And frankly, don't expect all of those reserves to stay on the reserve list either. So, you know, could we be biting deeper even than the reserves we've currently got? I'm aware there's at least one team not on the reserve list, ready to go. uh, It is going to be a matter of just seeing how things pan out. Uh, Interesting that, by the way, the ACO have not yet confirmed uh, which cars from the reserve list are officially in the race. That probably means they're expecting more of this, is the straight answer, because normally speaking, they would not leave us without a full grid. Um, It's not a blame game. This is tough. This is really, really tough, and nobody likes doing Uh, these things Porsche certainly a long chat with them earlier today Um, you can hear the sorrow in the voices it does mean at the moment uh, we've got six factory drivers from Porsche that are not going to have uh, a seat in the Le Mans 24 hours in 2020 including two previous overall winners one previous double winner in Earl Bamba and his partner in crime in 2015 uh, with that win with Nico Hülkenberg Nick Tandy Uh, benched at the moment the assumption though not confirmed yet is that the the remaining two wec cars will stay with their allocated additional drivers so that will stay the same as does mean there's some rather talented porsche uh, guns available should there be any of the gtm teams uh, looking to increase the punch and of course a couple of the the guys that we're talking about here matt campbell and Julian Andlauer have already been the GTE Am champion at the Le Mans 24 hours. That's enough of that. Let's uh, see if we can find some of the positivity of which you spoke just a few moments ago. Stephen, it's going to be your turn this time to be my traditional role, when Marshall's uh, on duty, of, as he says, the selector um, (laughs) of the category. We've got four, as always. We've got some fun questions. We've got some general questions about the world of endurance racing. With what we call WEC, Aslam's ACO, Elms, the world of ACO racing, and we've got IMSA. So, and with absolutely due respect to those, uh, those, those characters, uh, categories, excuse me, that uh, feature the Andrew Backer supplied jingles. Where are we going first? as the eagle soars above us. Uh, it's time for the IMSA questions. And I think you're going to deal these ones out to me, are you not, Stephen, for starters? Yes. Yeah, so There'll a, be a, plenty that you can answer, I'm sure. Not in any way putting down your level of knowledge about uh, endurance uh, sports, because that would be wrong Wrong of me.
1: My encyclopedia my is slightly smaller than yours, Graham. <laughs> I think it's safe to say. Do you want to talk... Um, as a, in a general sense, about LMDH and the, the rules, or do you want to go into the questions straight away?
0: Well, we, let's let's get into the questions, because I think it's going to prompt some of the major thoughts and some of the major clarifications that people are looking for. Um, as always, uh, a very large number of questions, and great to see still more new names popping up here. We are so very grateful that you buy into um, this this format. It makes it great fun for us, because we're never really sure what we're going to find Uh, in this list of questions. There are always, always, always too many to answer, and we will apologise now, I'll apologise later once again if we don't get to yours. We've got a reasonable amount of time this evening to crack on with this, um, but we will not be able to cover the well-into-three figures of questions that we've got uh, for this evening's show. We'll do our best to group as many together as we possibly can. But crack on, let's uh, let's see what the major themes are, Stephen.
1: We'll start with Cookie Monster, um, who's asked a very... Uh, he's asked three questions, I think. So we'll start with his first one. Uh, with the wording of mainstream manufacturers included in the LMH entry considerations, is this a shot across the bow potential entrants like Glickenhouse and Collis, or will we see similar allowances for entries like the WC has been?
0: Um, there's a number of people I know asking about uh, the the uh, mainstream uh, manufacturers part of the, the, the regulations. We'll come to that in a moment. Daniel Summersgill is another uh, right Turn Lover, who says, How often do I have to repeat daft in the context of possibly excluding House from competing at IMSA? Um, who else we've got here? We've got uh, B- uh, on, BH2EFR. That looks to me like a Reddit uh, name. Um, and the Baxter. Andrew Baxter is also asking whether or not that rule follows, uh, the rule is targeting SCG. Uh, and Bagger as well asking, what's the yearly road car production from SCG compared to Panos at its peak, asking for a friend. Uh, is McLaren a mainstream manufacturer, says F1 WC fan? Let's cover it all off. Mm. First things first. As we stand today, IMSA has not accepted uh, any Le Mans hypercar manufacturers. What I think the defining part of what we saw yesterday was a really positive move to leave the door open to as many options as possible. Now, that's realistic because we don't know what we're going to get uh, the other side of this crisis. We do know there's going to be some damage uh, both to uh, the wider automotive industry, certainly into motorsport. We're expecting some casualties. We've already seen some in the wider world, including the Audi DTM programme. So I think what we're seeing in terms of the way in which most of these regulations have been voiced, and certainly this level of flexibility that we know uh, they're open to about when this starts. So in other words, the target is still 2022, but we know there's active consideration that if the industry isn't ready, they'll go later. But the important point that's been made here is this description that IMSA in particular have given, that they are are prepared to effectively look at uh, the viability of mainstream manufacturers in hypercar, coming to do IMSA races. That's for one reason and one reason only. It's because that's what fits their current business model. Remember, we've talked about it on the show before. Manufacturers who are seen as partners uh, in uh, IMSA racing pay these marketing fees. Uh, I know you've got some interesting stuff coming on that on Daily Sports, going on on Racer in the near future. So we're not going to tell any tales out of school quite yet. But what it means is significant sums of money, I think I'm right, Stephen, seven figure sums of money uh, that are required from manufacturers in order that they can activate their involvement with the championship. Some of that that money comes to the championship. Some of it comes to championship partners. And what that basically means is you are investing in the championship and helping to promote this. The reality is when you're talking about truly boutique manufacturers like Bicolus, who intend to, uh, in terms of market road car versions of their race car and uh, and Glickenhaus, who do have the um, do have the the ambition to get homologated road cars in reasonable numbers it'll still be boutique sort of numbers but bear in mind they're talking about getting to homologation levels for gt3 for some of their products uh, so the answer there is are they genuinely going to have you know let's call it uh, lots and lots of hundreds of thousands of dollars, or indeed a million dollars, to spend um, on a sanctioning fee. The answer is they almost certainly are not going to have that. Is the door firmly closed? The answer is no, it isn't. Uh, because let's face it, I mean, this is where I think it comes to Right Turn Lover's bit about the daft bit. These are not daft people, Right Turn Lover. If it turned out that what you've got is six, seven, LMDH manufacturers, there's an argument to say you don't need anybody else to come along and play. There's an argument that says, actually, that might be a problem bringing in hypercars for the odd one or two races if you've got that many manufacturer teams. If, however, they find themselves in a bit of a pickle, the like of which the WC did in the aftermath of the rapid-fire uh, pullouts from Porsche and then uh, from Audi and then Porsche, then there might well be a plan B or a plan C further down the line where Jim Glickenhouse's uh, phone rings at an odd time in the morning and he gets uh, a welcome uh, catch up with the IMSA management. In, In very many ways, I hope that's not the case. I hope what they've got is more than they need to sustain the quality of competition. But it is at the moment a guessing game. Who's in the room now? Who's going to be in the room at the end of this? Who's going to still be in the room when they've taken those proposals that we hope they're going to bring forward to their boards and come back with or without a yes, we don't know. And this is the second rollout for hashtag wait and see. I'll just
1: add an extra bit to that when you're talking about manufacturer fees. So I've spoken to somebody in the last couple of weeks who's at the head of a manufacturer uh, customer racing program that isn't a current full-season IMSA manufacturer. And when they were discussing this very topic about manufacture of fees of IMSA, um, they quite rightly requested uh, on their behalf, would they need to pay the full fee if they were only going to have one or two customers in GTD or in DPI? Would they need to pay the full fee? And IMSA's answer was very strict and it was, yes, you've got to pay the full thing. We yeah. can't turn around to Cadillac and say, well, we're charging them half because they've only got one customer because they wouldn't see it as fair. So they're not likely to budge. If a very niche manufacturer comes in and says, we want one car for one race,
0: they're not they're not likely to budge if they retain the number of customers at yes. the current level. I think that's the point here is this is the see aspect is there are a lot of assumptions being made here that there are two two basic buzz phrases coming out here. One relates to the business model. They would like to stick to their current business model. They think that's been successful if they possibly can. The other one is the market will decide. And that is a very important phrase. It's a catch-all. It basically means that you can uh, you can actually decide on the basis of success in terms of the numbers. If you've got the level, I think it's 13 manufacturers across IMSA's uh, championships at the moment that are regarded as partners Uh, In their racing series, you know, if they can retain that kind of level or even improve on that level, I think they'll be feeling pretty good about it. If, however, they start to see a dramatic dip led by economic downturn after this crisis, who knows what could change? We simply don't know. One uh, quick point, by the way, uh, in terms of one of the questions I referred to earlier, I'm just going to have a quick look down and see whose questions this this is Andrew Back's question about it was Andrew, sorry, Andrew Backer's question about, about, um, the McLaren thing—they are a mainstream manufacturer in terms of both the number of cars they produce and the fact that, in order to put their uh, Sprint Cup entry in, they did have to pay that fee. That fee was there. They're already uh, partners with uh, some motor, some activation through what happens with the Michelin Pilot Challenge in the 570 GT4, but uh, they were not—you um, know—excluded the necessity to pay the fees that are relevant in the parts of that package which their customers take part in. But uh, there they crucially
1: fu- didn't have to pay the full fee because well, they only had a car in, a sp- in the sprint races, and that's a lower fee. Is you, Ill- have is Ill- you have to pay more if you want to do
0: the full season. You do indeed. Uh, now, the other quick question you did say was, uh, what was that about the um, the uh, the relative uh, production totals of Panos and SCG? Well, at the moment, Pan-OS, Sorry, SCG... Don't at the moment have homologated road cars. Their plan is that they will. That is firmly something that Jim Glickenhouse is actually uh, pushing on for. I think at the moment his road cars he produces are low volume. Um, it's at kind of lower level of homologation. He is planning to get the cars uh, properly homologated, and I look forward to the fact that to the uh, time when that's the case, because I'd love to be talking about you know Jim being a you know, a mainstream rather than a boutique manufacturer. And I'm sure we'd love that too. But for that to happen, lots of somebody's going to have to buy lots of very nice click-and-house road cars, and he's got uh, a variety that are potentially available for on- and, indeed, off-road use. But for the moment, that's where they are. Stick with the plan if they possibly can. Leave the door ajar, at least – to see whether or not they might need to go to a plan B, C or D a bit further down the line. But uh, what they're trying to do is to stick with what they know has worked for them thus far. It is not a slam in the door, slam in the, a door in the face, Jim Glickenhouse. And let's face it, when Jim committed to Hypercar, that was never an option at all to, to, to actually go to IMSA with those cars. It was never even on the table. Uh, So it's not, whilst it might be a disappointment that there might be an option offered in the future to, let's say, Toyota, uh, we'll come to a potential for other hypercar manufacturers when we get to the next section of questions. The reality was that Jim committed to going hypercar without any anticipation that that car might race it in the major IMSA races. So two things to take into account there. One is, it's IMSA's choice what business model they go down two is, the level of anticipation to compete, even in his home market, was simply not there beyond the WEC race uh, when Jim committed the uh, programme and the budget to the rather fabulous-looking 007. Mustangs next,
1: mate? shot Free says, what other manufacturers can, could present themselves in LMDH? Are there any possibilities of companies such as Ford or Honda at the moment?
0: Well, bear in mind that Honda is there at the moment with the Acura brand, uh, with the DP uh, program with Penske, we, we are yet to hear formally of any of the three existing DP manufacturers. That's, of course, GM with Cadillac, it's Mazda and it's Acura, Honda, um, committing to LMDH. But then again, we're not hearing anybody yet commit to LMDH. And we're unlikely to hear that in the current climate, I think, for some months yet. Um, so, you know, things certainly have been rolled back and pushed back a little with this ongoing crisis. Uh, but what are the hopes like? I think, well, there's a lot of movement, as you've seen, in terms of the numbers that are coming into um, the uh, LMDH regulations, in particular, a very significant part of that. With these changes in terms of the um, the mechanical, the powertrain package, it does mean that the existing DP, manuf- DP DPI manufacturers um, will be able to use, should they choose to do so, their existing power plants uh, to, to actually have a bolt-on hybrid onto the existing uh, DPI power plants. You know, It's well within the range, for instance, of a GT3 engine uh, to produce that kind of sort, sort of 600 horsepower or so. So the answer is we don't yet know. Hopes are high. The room uh, for LMDH technical working groups has been uh, more full than it has been at any time. There are new names coming in through those doors. And we are going to keep confidences of some of the things that we know right now. But uh, trust me, there's some very interesting names indeed uh, inside those closed doors of uh, the discussions about just exactly what it is that's going to be required uh, to get those cars on track from both the uh, the manufacturer's point of view, the potential for customer cars point of view, and crucially for both the championships that will now be seeing these cars, uh, we hope, from as early as 2022. Uh, as their new, or at least parts of their new, uh, top class.
1: Well, they were keen to state they'd sent out 12, 12 documents to manufacturers, didn't they? So to, to a more, Or, sorry, more than a dozen. Uh, so they're, they're very keen to point that out in their press release. Yep. Um, so next question is Ran, uh, Randy Rando Magnum, who says, uh, this might be an over Randy sub-
0: Rando Magnum?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a real tongue twister. <laughs> yeah. He says, this might be an oversimplification, but the draft regs read like a global adoption of DPI 2.0 with a different name. Is that fair?
0: More or less. I mean, uh, you know, it clarifies some of the things we didn't know that DPI 2.0 had actually um, agreed upon. There's been some changes in terms of the, uh, the 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 baseline numbers for this, but more or less, what we've got though since that uh, those days is uh, it's. <laughs> It's frankly a better deal for everybody. No matter which manufacturer you are or which customer for which manufacturer you are, your options are now going to be greater with what you do with those cars. Uh, You will have the option to go to the Le Mans 24 hours. You'll have the option to race those cars in the WEC. You'll have the option to race a factory car, maybe in IMSA, and maybe sell customer cars into the WEC or vice versa. So all of those options... Make it a far more, potentially far more sustainable marketplace. A bit like GT3, if you like, or for that matter, GTE. Uh, what it means is your your opportunities uh, as a team to monetize your investment in those cars is bigger. Your, op- your opportunities as a manufacturer or a customer um, uh, racing uh, operation within a manufacturer, your uh, potential market effectively is doubled. Uh, And I think that's the difference from DPI 2.0. That was a purely uh, IMSA formula until we got to that, you know, well, uh, astonishing press conference at uh, Daytona in January. And since then, everything has changed and much for the better. And boy, oh, boy, are we lucky that 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 happened before the world descended into the chaos we're now, I'm afraid, suffering.
1: Ryan Comerford says... Uh, taking into account the small power gains granted to dpi along with more weight are we looking at similar speeds and lap times to the current generation of IMSA prototypes
0: uh, no i think we're talking quicker so um so it's what 670 horsepower with the spec hybrid system for the lmdh cars um the, the, you know what you can play with power and you can play with weights. Uh, there's also remember the different way in which a hybrid delivers the power we've seen this graphically in the WEC Uh, there will be I am absolutely certain of it uh, some projections for what these cars will produce in terms of top speeds and uh, and lap times we don't yet know for instance exactly what the um, the level of power delivery for those uh, hybrid systems is going to be I'm guessing if you've got it you can use it in terms of the uh, the energy stored um, with your hybrid power system rather than the kind of restrictions we've seen with the, the very much more complex LMP1 uh, hybrids where there's all sorts of um, restrictions on what you can do with that energy. We've seen it graphically when cars run out of hybrid boost. You know, something like 1G deceleration we're told when it comes off boost in you know an earlier generation uh, LMP1 hybrid, for instance. So the answer is no, you are going to see... Quicker lap times than the already pretty quick um, lap times of the DP, uh, the current DPIs. My guess would be, and it is a guess, it's going to be somewhere between those lap times and the lap times we're seeing from the current non-hybrid um, LMP1s uh, before we had the kind of the success balancing, uh, success balance, success handicap rather uh, system that came in for the current season.
1: Let's not forget as well that uh, Michelin is still pretty new to supplying as top class, and oh, so that just the tyre development will could be massive. More
0: could be massive. Uh, Lormick says, what
1: knock-on effects would the LMDH regs have on the GTLM slash GTE fields? Uh, with manufacturers like Porsche, Porsche looking at these new prototypes, does this spell the end for their GT entries?
0: Well, I think, that, again, this, this answers the question. There's the answer we could have given you before Um, about the end of February this year. The answer we're going to have to give you now, which is before the end of February, the answer was from many of the manufacturers, potentially not. They've got good customer teams that could step up. There's certainly a good um, customer base that would keep GT uh, LM and GTE Pro alive for a number of years. But there's a brave new world and it can look very different. And I think we're just going to have to hang on in there and see what might come out of that. Um, You know, there was a similar answer, by the way, from Aston Martin back in the day where the plan was they were going to be doing both. Well, they're not going to be doing Hypercar anymore. Uh, Let's hope they continue to follow down and uh, keep down the GTE model because if they, you know, if the GTE pro um, field gets into trouble on the back of much increased numbers of prototypes in the top class, then Aston Martin could be something of a loss, couldn't they? Uh, So it's a third thing, I'm afraid, under the hashtag wait and see. Uh, But at the moment, I think you're right. If we get a very large take up in terms of LMDH across the the board, that does not bode well for double budgets into motorsport programs for the road cars from the major manufacturers that might otherwise choose to look to the top class and go for overall wins. Mm. Uh, Tiger three three eighty says:
1: Is it clear which of the current DPO manufacturers are likely to commit to LMDH?
0: No, it isn't, and um, you, know, you know the answer is you've got to uh, say they would be more likely than most on the basis that they do have investment already in relevant infrastructure, racing infrastructure, some of the equipment potentially part of the powertrain as we just said a little earlier so we but we don't yet know there are no formal commitments from any of the three that are in current IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship we shouldn't see that as a negative yet um, but it's not a positive yet either Uh, but uh, certainly everything we heard this week in terms of the regulations doesn't make it any less likely that they will be there let's put it that way.
1: Clubman says, uh, hi Clubman, uh, he says, uh, looks like your article has indicated that there'll be a spec hybrid for MDH. Can you expand a bit more on the yep. reasons that they've chosen that?
0: Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, there's three reasons for it. It's finance, money, and budget. Um, it's money. It's as simple as that. It's about keeping the uh, still maturing uh, racing hybrid technology at an affordable level. and It's stopping as well a bit of an arms race that might put the budgets for LMDH uh, into kind of something of an orbit. We saw some of the astounding, absolutely astonishing pace of development that we saw in just a few short years in LMP1, um, uh, LMP1 hybrid. And you know, the the one that I—it's one of my go-to little figures. To it's double the energy being stored in the Porsche's battery pack for a battery pack that was physically no bigger and no heavier. Double. And that was no small amount of, of energy, let me tell you. And that was done in a single racing year. Uh, so that's fantastic in terms of the R&D, but that comes with a very big price tag attached. Even before COVID-19, it was deemed by all the manufacturers involved here that level of investment was not sustainable. Post-COVID-19, it hasn't. it's not going to have got any better, is it? We don't yet know who's supplying the spec. We hybrid. don't, no, 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 But it will be a spec hybrid system across all of those um, platforms, and it's going to be interesting to see who comes up and says we're interested in that. We've heard a few names already, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see who pops up as you know as potential competitors for that contract.
1: In Musson's are Asking uh, about LMDH and hypercar, and whether they'll have to be slow. Uh, whether they have to slow down LMP2 cars at all um, to count to counteract the fact that they're going to be heavier than the current set of top class prototypes.
0: Uh, it remains to be seen exactly what we're going to see from uh, LMP2. The last I heard and spoke to those that are in the know on this one, uh, I think we were talking about the the potential um, handicapping, if you like, of LMP2 being rather less stringent than perhaps some people have actually imagined. They are not going to be looking to put the LMP2s on a completely different planet. Uh, they're just going to be looking to keep them out of trouble. The, the thing you've also got to remember, I think the, the, the point being made here is quite right, you've got to be careful about top speeds because top speeds of those GTE cars are very impressive indeed. Uh, so what you don't want to do is to get two, three classes basically polling into the same uh, heavy braking zones that's remarkably similar straight line speeds, but with very different braking abilities. They're in danger light. So they've got the heads up about this. They are thinking across the piece about trying to keep things separated. Um, but you're quite right to be questioning about this, bearing in mind we've got LMP3 cars in some series. Uh, ELMS, for instance, that if you've got slower uh, LMP Two cars, the LMP3 cars are getting rather quicker, and there's certainly nothing slow about a GT3 car, um, a GTE car, rather, in the LMs. In WEC, it's going to be about uh, LMP2 and LMDH, and of course, and, and GTE Pro for the moment as well, and the same for the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. That is the task, is how can you keep, you know, one of the things I think a lot of us love about sports car racing is it's three or four separate races On the same bill, if you like, but equally well, at times maybe see some of those cars mixing it up a bit. Particularly when you've got um, changeable weather, Uh, in those instances, a little bit more hybrid power should be a good thing. But will it be? Could be quite an interesting part of it, couldn't it?
1: Tom Firth says, "Can you talk us through the process that IMSA has had to go through to validate the LMH performance?" Is it a similar process that WC has had to go through to val- validate the LMDH performance against the LMH REX? Just trying to understand the introduction timeframe disparity for the LMH, LMH state side.
0: I think the, the way you need to kind of recast your um, your expectation here, Tom, is that there's not been an agreement yet that LMH will be accepted into the IMSA Weather Tech Sports Car Championship. What they're saying is that the door is open that it might, and they'll make that decision, that assessment, once we know a bit more about what happens with LMDH. We'll know that, I think, reasonably short period of time, not as short period of time as we perhaps thought last, uh, when we last talked about this back in January. But uh, I think the answer here is to the question is going to be determined by how many people step up and say yes to LMDH. And that's how many factories, and it's how many customers for some of those factories. So the answer at the moment is, is perfectly still perfectly valid. They talked about uh, validating the performance of those cars at US circuits. That means they need to know a lot more about the performance aspects of the cars. In principally, in this case, that would be Toyota. Um, and they need to know a lot more about those cars modelled against the circuits for which they currently have data. So it's, it's a data matching process. Could it mean that if Toyota wants to come and play, they've got to go and test? It probably does mean that. Uh, but there's not going to be a chance to do that for some little time yet. So we're not talking any time before 2022 for that to be even a prospect. There is time to do that. Um, and if Toyota, and you spoke to Toyota yesterday, Stephen, um, want to come and play, and they do, if there's any opportunity to do it, my guess is they will commit the uh, the resources to make sure that whatever IMSA require uh, to be reassured that they can be balanced against the LMDHs on the US tracks, that will be provided. I don't think you're hearing anything different, are you?
1: No, no. What I would say, though, on this topic is, for those of you thinking, well, if they're going to have to balance these cars in the WC anyway, um, then why, why would it be a problem for them to have to validate them on the US circuits um, if LMH was to go to IMSA? Um, and this, this makes you think back to uh, an interview I did with Chris Baker from Michelin you said that even though Michelin do tyres, for instance, for LMP2 cars in WC, it's not quite as simple for them to just plug and play um, in IMSA with the same tyres and expect the same performance levels, because there are real differences in the types of circuits that IMSA goes to, as opposed to WC. There's more street tracks. Daytona is a unique circuit because of the banking. And you've also got, you know, WC full of sort of big tilker drones. So... It's, I, I think there is going to be a little bit of a challenge there in making sure that if the LMH cars do come to play, that they are going to, you know, is going to be fair to the to the teams in LMGH when it comes to VOP.
0: Yeah, it's it's a complex uh, matter, but it's not, none of these things are insurmountable. It comes down to the will of the, the manufacturer to, to jump through those hoops and the opportunity being there for those manufacturers to do it in the first place. But uh, I do think in the first instance... That's likely to involve a conversation with and about Toyota rather than anybody else, certainly for year one. What else have we got?
1: Doug Bonham says, so so the shoe has dropped for LMDH and there are positive grumbles from at least one major endurance focused OEM. Do we expect the entries for uh, LMDH when all is said and done to come from mainly manufacturers or mainly privateer teams or is it going to be a mixture of both?
0: Well, I mean, certainly the key to the success of this is going to be in the number of manufacturers that actually commit. No no doubt about that whatsoever. But I agree with what the the, I'm guessing that the subtext here is from you, Doug, which is to make this sustainable, there's got to be a healthy privateer marketplace uh, beyond that. That is going to be what I think boosts the numbers. I think to a greater or lesser extent boosts the interest as well beyond just the uh, the, the, um, the factory teams. And it certainly gives the opportunity for more brands to be seen in more races across both championships that will welcome these cars if a customer has got the opportunity to buy something a little bit different that maybe isn't there as a manufacturer uh, operation in their championship and uh, maybe find that tiny unfair advantage uh, within the, the rules and regulations. So, what do I expect? I expect we could, if the budgets emerge here, um, have a sensible number of customer LMDHs across both championships. So I think you know there are some potential takers for that already um, across uh, prototype racing and beyond. Uh, I think there's potential here for this to be a formula that some of the bigger single-seater teams see as an opportunity to, you know, either add a program or as a replacement program. But there's still a lot of work to do, and we still, I'm afraid, again, I'm, I'm going to get a bit like a broken record with this. We're going to have to uh, see how things turn out, uh, you know, in the months and indeed the years to follow as the global economy. Staggers back to its feet after what's been a very tough time, and remains a very tough time. The hope is a very healthy number of manufacturer programs, and my guess would be that in the current climate, there is the one positive with that um, that uh, emerging uh, issues uh, in terms of the, the the economy. If anything, that means that customer programs are more likely mm. because what that means or at least the offer for customer programs are more likely because they're gonna to have to monetize those programs um you know they're gonna to have to find a way of reducing the cost to the core company which means you've got to try to push towards that being a profit center And the only way you're going to do that because uh, you're not going to do it from just marketing directly your race program is by selling cars and parts for those cars uh, effectively Um, The LMDH marketplace is kind of super-duper GTE slash GT3, isn't it, really? But um, we we will see um, not only who steps up in terms of the manufacturers, but which of the existing uh, group and hopefully another emerging group of privateer teams that might find the prospect of winning some very big races in, let's face it, a balance of uh, performance-led formula that might be of real appeal to some big names that maybe you've not considered would be part of sports car racing in the near future. Uh,
1: just just to clear it up, Graham, manufacturers in LMDH can just produce a car and sell it to customers without running as a factory team, and you can have the same situation we have with ESM where they kind of produce a car on behalf of a factory themselves.
0: Uh, they can. They don't have to
1: run a factory programme, do
0: they? They can, but certainly in IMSA, should they do that, somebody's got to pay that fee. Mm. So it's, there's no uh, get-out-of-jail-free card here. What the, all that would mean for, let, let's say, I don't know, for the sake of arguing, let's say Tracy Crone decided to do a, uh, a deal with, I don't know, insert name of car company, Kia. And if Tracy was the only runner for Kia and wanted to run a full season of the Emson WeatherTech Sports Car Championship and take the car to Le Mans, uh, it would be, have to be a deal between Kia and South Korea, it would have to be a deal between the importer of Kia into the United States and the team as to who paid what proportion of that uh, of that uh, marketing fee to IMSA because, make no mistake, that fee would have to be paid.
1: Ed Horace says, how hard would it be for GM to scale up the GTU C8 to fit within the hypercar envelope? Wouldn't that be the ultimate for that programme to potentially win races in IMSA and win Le Mans with an upgraded and affordable road
0: car? I, I can't. See that that's even remotely in the ballpark. I'll be honest with you, Ed. Um, I, I just think a car that's been designed to fit one form of regulations, that being GTE, is just so far out the ballpark, particularly with the aero you'd need. Uh, there might be the odd kind of transferable component, but I don't think it would be very much more than that. Remember, it's about the base um, chassis that you'd require for that. Could you build it around a road car? You could, but my guess would be. It would be cheaper to start from a uh, from a, a clean screen rather than actually amend uh, an existing GTE car. I just cannot see that being a practical, viable financial proposition for Pratt Miller and for uh, Corvette Racing to do that. Um, and bear in mind that the same family have got equally valid experience with what they did with the Delara chassis and the Cadillac for squeezing the very best out of. Well, I'm not unrelated package uh, DPI to LMDH, so my guess would be because the the missing part of the equation here is what are these cars going to look like, and I think the answer is they're not going to look like a Corvette C8R, but they're not going to look like a Delara either. Um, you know, imagine at the moment what you're looking at with the Cadillac uh, DPI. Imagine something that looks a lot more like a road car than that. I, I guess. I'm trying to think of a good example to use here. And the best thing I can give you is a bit like a kind of cross between one of those not quite a McLaren F1 um, Hot Wheels cars. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. kind of clearly designed to have uh, the styling cues that make make, make make it evocative of that. Uh, that kind of iconic car, but without crossing the line into just being a clone for that car, for which point, you know, somebody gets sued uh, because they're not paid the licensing fee. But you're going to see, I think, significantly more um, road car marks, styling cues on those cars that you currently do with the DPIs. Uh, I'll say again, um, the DPIs look great. I think in terms of their relevance to the brand, that's the only disappointment for me with the current crop of DPIs. For me, they don't quite have enough styling cues to fly the flag in the way that perhaps we're being asked to acknowledge that they are doing. Uh, It's no insult at all. I think they've done a fine job with the cars that we've seen so far. Uh, The Mazda, I think, is a stunning uh, piece of kit, but it doesn't look anything like a Mazda 3 or a Mazda Miata. Mm. That's the end of IMSA. It's time to move on. Lovely. In which case... Uh, we're going to go next, are we, to Wek, Aslam's, Elms and Akko? No.
1: Let's go General.
0: Oh. We're going to head yeah, so we're Yeah, all right. To, so we're not going to have the... Um, apparently not. Oh, well, fair enough. Right. Go for it. So it's me yeah. this time. William Matson says, Hi, guys. Graham loves the best worst Dreamcast series. Please keep it up. Have to say, been surprised to see Panos so frequently listed. As the worst car, I remember hearing a lot of good things about the Esperanti GTR1 and the LMP1. Can of you gentlemen share some insights as to what could have caused such a sudden and sharp drop-off in quality? Would you like to explain what it is uh, that William is talking about here, uh, 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 Stephen? He well, yeah, the there? This, this, is, this is us um,
1: ringing up the driver after driver, and even drivers who we didn't know had driven panels seem to come up with relatively the same answer, which is even the esperante gt2 being the worst race car that they've ever driven but in the case of the esperante i think many have said it's actually one of the best because it won the modern. um and the is it the lmp07 i think correct says. Yeah. um and david Brabham. yes <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> even old bambo is even old people is who don't driven
0: it say it's terrible yes yeah. it's,
1: <laughs> even old Bamba said of panels and and i'll and, uh, most of you will go, when did El Bamba drive a panels? Well, you'll find out pretty soon. Wait and see. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, part of it's got to be down to budget and just how experimental some of those prototypes were, right? And the GT car, they were just, they were different and they were never going to be the same quality the likes of a Porsche. Um,
0: I think I think the answer is, it, it's interesting, the Panos Aspiranti GTLM that, that so far of the six drivers, that uh, drove it in 2007 because that's the crucial year four of them have been questioned by us there's a fifth actually on my list for a week or so's time and all four named it as their worst car i think the reality is it had been left behind uh won the race in 2006 as a bit of an outlier for team lnt yes that team lnt uh came back in 2007 with a two-car entry and the reality was that to keep in the performance envelope of a fast-moving GT2 field that basically Porsche had just taken another step, Ferrari had taken another step, and the Panos was left a little bit gasping and was beginning to get into trouble um, with stretching the envelope of the engine technology they had to keep the things reliable. It had struggled for reliability in 2006. In fact, the team couldn't believe they got the thing to the finish, let alone actually winning the race. But uh, not to say it's an awful car, but, by comparison with what else was out there, and most of the drivers that you know we 're talking about here, the likes of Rob Bell, the likes of you know Richard Dean, like of Tommy Milner, all three of whom uh, actually named the car as 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 being their their worst uh, they 've had the opportunity to test and race some of the opposition and just found the, that panas' wanting for the LMP07, It was a big leap forward in terms of the uh, the aero the technology the engine technology for that that that, that uh, matter and the package just didn't seem to hang together I had major problems with vibrations from the initial It engine. just didn't
1: communicate well the rear and no. front and the rear didn't communicate with each other
0: no and i think the pro- problem was it it's it, as both the drivers we've spoken to said it felt quick but it just wasn't uh, and that's it's pretty just fundamental. sounded <laughs> Pretty
1: quick, but, but, you know sense. it's a
0: shame because the thing did look awesome. You know, the known as the Alien uh, to those of us that watched it did lead Le Mans, but albeit you know around pit stops and under kind of wet dry uh, session. But um, no, it was just a bit of a wrong turn, and such a shame because you're quite right again, William. The um, the the roadster and before that the GTR were properly fan favourites. Should say by the way, I'm speaking tomorrow. In fact, as I speak here. Uh, on Friday evening to one of the drivers of the uh, Panos GTR for his crack at uh, good car, bad car, uh, good car, sorry, best car, worst car, dream car, get it right, Graham. Um, And we'll see whether or not he comes up with Panos. I don't think he will, Um, but we'll see what kind of emerges from that one. Certainly no slight to Panos. They've always been an absolute blast to work with um, and to see out there and you know, I think it's there's a number of brands that are kicking around now in the fringes that look to Panos as a bit of a standard bearer uh, for what an outlier should be pushing to do. Don't be boring. The one thing Don Panos was not ever was boring.
1: There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, panels in the whole House thing, isn't there? That's there is a, there is philosophy. very much that.
0: Next up, it's uh, SRA Smoking Puppy Eight Four One. My favourite uh, Twitter handle of the lot since. Uh, Whether the organizers of sports car racing forget that endurance racing is built from efforts of constructors and smaller companies, Sim- similar question really. Who added to OEMs o- to create a full and fleshed-out grid? OEMs are cool, but nothing unique. I think well, this is Stephen. It's it's a, it's a it's an expansion of a question we've dealt with before, which is there's the big companies, there's the outliers, and then there's the uh, the professional race teams who'd like to do something a little bit in between. I tend to agree with you. Okay. You and I, Stephen, have been thrashing through a lot of the the DSC archive to bring some feature coverage back uh, from the you know the that great hard drive in the sky. Um, and amongst that, there's all sorts of kind of cookie programs, things like the TVR Tuscan R T400 R, you know, beloved by so many people. I was actually on the phone today to one of the drivers of the Morgan that actually did. Uh, Le Mans a couple of times and raced in various forms uh, around the world and it is a shame that we don't see those kind of things and yes I, I have to tell you I'm a bit of a standard bearer for this on occasion I've made myself mildly unpopular in very senior company by basically asking the question where is the opportunity in your current rule set to allow someone with vision to come in and play and the answer is increasingly little opportunity to bring those companies in. Maybe, just maybe, depending on just how bad the news is to come for the sport coming forward, that those opportunities might present themselves again if someone's there with the ambition, and for that matter, the budget, to come forward and say, I'd like to play, you know, on one of the uh, highest levels of international motorsports. Right now, difficult to see that happening in the very uh, short term. But I certainly wouldn't count it out because I think we've got some shockers still to come uh, from across the whole of the industrial picture of the world. And the inevitability is that that's going to hit the automotive industry. It's going to hit every industry. And that, as a knock-on effect, as we've already seen with Audi pulling out the DTM, and uh, for that matter, Porsche pulling out of Le Mans from their, for their IMSA uh, cars, uh, that, that, that game is not done yet. It's- Next. I'm sorry, no, 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 no you, you go on if you want to. Next up, Curry Schumacher. Here at the Hammer Emporium, he says, "As we're, uh, as he, uh, there he goes, as uh, we're restocking our Warhammer aisle, we got to ask in the regulations. Notice a lot of reference in the race article to GT3 motors for mt h's hypercar. Are well, you anticipating this becomes another revenue stream for the GT3 builder." Please don't forget to visit our online store for all our quarantine hammer needs. Thank you very much indeed for that. Before we move off that second point, by the way, uh, Joshua Ponce says, uh, Will Boucher's Summer Emporium have a new product coming out soon with all the new LMDH hypercar regulations coming out recently? And finally, because there's two aspects to this, Daniel Summerskill says, Any idea what the H in Le Mans Daytona H stands for? He thought it was going to be called something else once the regs were released. It's clearly not hybrid as they're not required. Well, they actually are required for LMDH. Um, but I'm going to just say right now, cue the jingle. And that's because, guess what the H stands for? Think about that for a minute. Boucher's Hammer. hammer. Just think what that might be. Actually, you know what? LeMond Daytona Hammer. That That's a cool name. <laughs> That's a cool name. But going back, going back to the initial question here, um, could it be an, a, an additional revenue stream for the GT3 builders? It very much could. Mm, you know, it if takes off. If that's what people want to use, if that's what the uh, the manufacturer wants to use. Remember, the Nissan uh, DPI was the GT3 engine uh, from the GTR Nismo GT3. Um, so if they feel they've got uh, you know an engine that can do the job and if you you know you look at some of the for instance you know the amg units the um vag units for lamborghini and you how do that vita it uh, sorry a
1: far, a market, right, lamborghini, it could be you know, for this, so, something
0: something like a 5.2 liter v10 well, that would seem to have the potential wouldn't it that is a that is a uh, an engine that is f- perfectly capable of putting out big, big power, and reliably so. So, you know, look at those guys. It might not suit every single LMP, uh, sorry, P 3 GT3 engine, but yes, could that help them with the uh, the way in which the numbers come together? Absolutely it could, I have zero doubts that at least one or two of the prospects that uh, are there in that room are most certainly based upon that very premise. So we are fifth iteration of hashtag wait and see we're going to have to wait and see but i would not be remotely surprised to see at least one or two coming forward with that as a favorite option
1: interesting to see what porsche would do if it does go in dh racing would it would it just take its gt3 engine or would they go full porsche and design something completely new
0: well i think the answer is that porsche i think they have got a very clear idea of what it is they want to do what they're not doing yet is telling us i know we've got some questions about porsche so we'll come to that uh, very shortly. Next up, John D. who says, oh, bad things about road stark styling cues. Shouldn't future prototypes look like the Tarso Marquez prototype? Yes. Right. So <laughs> if you don't know what this is, take a look at Delhi Sports Car. Take a look at uh, Twitter as well. But Delhi Sports Car this this week um, with some pictures of a uh, car for the Brazilian Endurance Series. Not the first time we featured a, uh, a car for the Brazilian Endurance Series. Uh, during the series it's one of the very few places on the planet where you've got fairly open prototype regulations these are kind of sub lmp2 kind of times but boy oh boy does this thing look extreme it tarso marquez yes that's Tasso marquez ex formula one driver now concept car builder has built this extraordinary batmobile like machine which is it really does look like one of those fantasy gran turismo cars doesn't it uh, very... Do you know what I thought when I first saw it? Go on. I thought
1: that looks exactly like the car that if the aliens came down and you asked them the question, said so right, here's the Nordschleife for aliens, which of every car that's ever been built goes fastest around that circuit? They would point straight to that and go, it's clearly that one. Look at that.
0: Is that the way your mind works? It
1: is. I mean, we're in lockdown,
0: Graham. There are no rules. <laughs> Uh, it's amazing but uh, do i like the the thought it looks of, so fast <laughs> it just looks ridiculous so it looks fast standing still doesn't it i mean whether it works who knows who cares <laughs> that size it's, shot that we yeah, use
1: for uh, DSC just looks like it's going a gazillion it's, last an hour it's,
0: it's ridiculous isn't it so it's <laughs> it's lower than even my standards are um and yeah the v6 v6 turbo power uh looks absolutely amazing it's I love it. It's probably going to be crap. But, you know, who cares? It looks absolutely awesome. But, uh, yes, do I think prototypes should look like that? I'd love it if they were, because what it fundamentally isn't is it is not built in one of those kind of regulatory boxes and more power to the fabulous people of Brazil where they've got this. Uh,
1: I understand. Remember the one that came out on Twitter, right, that you tweeted. Yeah,
0: it's, that looks pretty cool as well. The Sigma, kind of with kind of LMP1 styling Hughes looks to me more LMP3 or new LMP3 type uh, size. The Metal Moro we covered a couple of years ago, but also in that championship, you've got all sorts of other things, including, for instance, from the Geneta G58. So that's the um, Geneta V8-powered LMP3 chassis cars. They're very quick. They're approaching kind of LMP2 um, types of speeds uh, certainly the old, the older kind of standard of LMP2. So more power to them. And you know what, if that draws a bit of international attention to that national series, we've said before, haven't we, and we've said even tonight it would be nice to have something that's a little bit outside the obligated box. So, John, yes, um, I, I, I think that's a, that's a good call. Um, Tom Firth says, different subject. Any thoughts on the proposed D, uh, idea of DTM adopting GT3 regs? I'll be honest with you, they've had a they've had a sniff around GT E, they've had a sniff around GT3. They have, I have to tell you, as an organization, got more enemies than friends out there at the moment. I think the the manner in which they have gone about business of late has annoyed lots of people that could potentially be useful to them right now. I've had two conversations today with two remarkably different people in the business both of whom, unbidden, were saying, because the question on the table was, you know, are are we actually seeing uh, the big uh, race organisers collaborating here to to rebuild the uh, the industry coming out of this crisis? And both name-checked uh, DTM as being some somewhat outliers in not being, how can I put this, very nice. Mm. Um So I think there is an element of, well, you've not helped us. In fact, you've hindered us in terms of things such as regulations and, for that matter, um, your calendars. Uh, I think there might be a degree of screw you there, Mm. to be honest with you. Um,
1: And here's the thing with GT3. Unless there's some direct collaboration with GT Masters or there's some full rebrand where GT Masters became DTM, ADAC GT is not going to go down without a fight. And adac GT is certainly not struggling. It may be a very political well, here's the thing. Adept, and that's always the criticism, Adept
0: but GT's the grids got, are big. Adept GT, unless they lose substantial numbers of people from their grid, have got a full grid. It's more than DTM have got. Now, what DTM have got that adac GT doesn't have is substantial manufacturer investment in that championship this year. Next year, they lose one of those two manufacturers, and they lose the manufacturer that's fielding most cars. I think DTM is in terminal trouble. Um, I cannot see a way through this for DTM in anything remotely close to its current form. I don't think uh, they're in the window for GT3 to be an option for them. I certainly don't think they're in the window for GTE to be an option for them anymore. Remember the questions we had earlier this evening about whether GTE's got uh, a future. You know, potential there, the old DRM, you know. Who's going to run on? Well, it's money. It's the huge amounts of money those wow, cars GT1 are going to win one more
1: championship, isn't it? Just well, unbelievably expensive. It's it's
0: basic that. basically. I'm afraid had this happened at any other time, with maybe a year uh, of notice, then maybe there's a hope in hell. Even that's a bit of a long shot. But number one, it's happened at the point where no one's going to be spending uh, money on a hit and hope project, and it's happened effectively weeks and months, not months and years, before a solution simply has to be found. I'm afraid if I was Gerhard Berger, I'd be coming up with a plan B from being chairman of the ITR. Mm. Next up, uh, let's have a quick look. Nick Dobniak. How far off the pace would the current crop of GT500 and DTM cars be? Could we actually see some more recognisable body styles coming out? Hashtag me personally. love to see GM bring back something like... Some of that, the Viper. Mm, okay, GM don't make the Viper, but I'll take your point. Um, as Horace also said, can we see some of the GT styling actually come back to top-plus top racing? As I said just a little while ago, you are going to see some more road car styling. Are they going to look like GT cars? No, they're not. Uh, will not we...
1: DTMs, certainly.
0: Absolutely. Will we see anything like a, a Super GT car in IMSA or WC? No, we won't. That was not really seriously looked at. There are there some aspects of what uh, Class 1 involves that have certainly been of an interest to the uh, the convergence talks, not least the kind of provision of common parts, and obviously there's this spec hybrid system, again, something um, that there's lessons to be learned from elsewhere. Uh, but no, you're not going to see Super GT, either directly in regulatory terms or as a description of what the cars look like. What you're going to see is effectively and here's another use of the word something close to hypercars and by that I mean road going hypercars, but something that is recognizably a you know insert name of major manufacturer but uh you and anybody else that knows anything about sports car racing will know for well that that is a prototype, no doubt whatsoever of that, but they will certainly not look like the current dpis uh Thomas Brennergast asked, who did it better, Bergmeister on Magnussen at Laguna Seca in 2009, or Santino on Askew in the uh, iIndy 175? Here's the thing, Tom, with absolute respect, these guys have just got to get their heads on. You want to be a professional racing driver. You want to be someone who's providing uh, good footage and good social media content in lockdown. You can't do both. It's a straight answer. If you wanna come on, uh, come on and you know, show yourself as being a true professional, get the job done on track, whether it's virtual or otherwise. If what you want to be is a social media influencer, good luck with that, but you've lost my respect. It's a straight answer. Too much ass-hattery about at the moment um in sim racing. You're either going racing or we're playing games, which we're gonna do, boys. You're the grown ups, you're the professionals, get on with it. Nothing more to say about it. It's one of the, to be honest with you, one of the reasons why, despite the fact I absolutely appreciate how valuable this is to championships, to teams, to drivers, to manufacturers, to keep some semblance of competition, and, um, uh, an enthusiasm alive. I'm just not into this uh, tabloid bullshit about how awful a person is because they've done X, Y, or Z. Uh, on effectively a very expensive computer game Uh, i think it's completely ridiculous and i i just want no part of it Stephen, you're young what do you think well
1: there's two ways i look at it i i think when it comes to sim racing and these you know the abundance we've got of you know being taken seriously by championship organisers you've got to look at it two ways. Yes, it's serious that you've got all these, you know, name drivers going and taking on sim races and, you know, it's putting on a show and they're getting some decent numbers of people watching it. So it should be taken, you know, seriously to to an extent, like being a real race. Um, But at the same time, you you know, you can't take it too seriously because it it isn't real. At least that's the way I see it. Um, But I certainly think that when people are going and just hitting each other off a circuit and just causing chaos, and it and it creates uproar. Um, I don't really know what to think about it. In some sense, I, I tend to think, "What's the point in you bothering if you're just going to act like that?" But at the same time, it's not real, so I can't get too excited about it. But
0: the thing is, you're a professional. You're not. If You're professional. Do a professional job. Don't behave like a small eight-year-old. Yeah. It I doesn't look good, doesn't look, yeah. No, it doesn't. Does, look it looks ridiculous. And neither does it look good if you come and you know decide to have a public argument about it either- uh, afterwards. And guys, you know, be a professional. Don't be a professional. You're going to be a professional. Come on, do it. Do it. You're not going to be a professional. Don't bother doing it in a public arena. Go and do it behind closed doors, under lockdown, online, with you know, three teenage mates. I, but either way, I don't want to watch your ass hattery and I absolutely don't want to read about it. Um, and neither am I particularly thrilled on seeing people. Sully their own or other people's professional reputa- reputations about this kind of stuff. You know, uh, it's it's sad that some big names have got involved in this, whether or not they're, you know, the perceived victim or the perceived perpetrator. G- get over yourselves, for God's sake! Put your baseball cap on the right way round, pull your bloody trousers up, and get on with your professional life. You know, I, I don't want everybody to be entirely vanilla, and I do like a little bit of banter. But, you, you know, I, I know people are jumping on bandwagons here, but it's just not what we need right now. You know, what we need right now is people putting on a positive aspect rather than finding things to argue about. For God's sake, there's going to be enough of that in the, the, the weeks, months and years to come. Believe you me. Uh, let's move exactly.
1: on. Well, what I do want to say quickly, though, is people on social media. I mean, so, it's so easy to get very depressed and read so much stuff that's negative at the moment, especially in the current climate come on, guys, Yeah, if you know somebody does a, a stupid move on a, on a sim race, yeah. let's not get to the point of sending people death threats and just horrible messages. I'll, I'll just I mean, delete that one now. You're just, as,
0: you're just as bad. Yes, yeah, you are. It's, it's, come it's, on, there's it, no it, need for it. No, there isn't. Okay, Josh Richman. Why aren't there really any electric sports car series? The closest to this one I know anyway is the Jaguar I-Pace series that sports Formula E, and it's terrible. Sorry, excuse me, do I say that out loud? Surely this relatively untapped market would be a goldmine for manufacturers. If it's a one-make thing, because again, you then get into performance balancing again. So the Jaguar I-PACE trophy, I've actually watched parts of two races. It was... I painted a room under lockdown, Stephen. This is a slight kind of parallel. And I genuinely think watching it dry was more entertaining than the Jaguar I-PACE trophy. Uh, it was awful. Um, it was absolutely awful. as a branding exercise. Good luck to you, Jaguar. Um, and thank you for doing all you've done with your racing heritage uh, down through most of my life. But the Jaguar I-PACE trophy uh, is, I think, one of the reasons I don't care about Jaguar anymore. Uh, because if that's what they think is promoting their sporting heritage of their brand i'm i stand here uh, disagreeing with them i think it's awful uh, it is a pure branding exercise good luck to you uh, I, I don't folks. have a problem with them
1: doing that we've taken a doing a one make electric series though the way I look at it yeah. is it's just not interesting to watch if they produced absolute savage gt cars that were all electric and they were quick Mm. And, you know, they were getting to the point where what Formula E might look like in a few years' time when they're even quicker than they are now. I can see that being entertaining. The problem is it's not interesting to watch. It's not. The fact that you've got the I-Pace trophy, the fact that it exists and that technology is there is impressive, And the cars don't look too bad, but it's just, it's depressingly slow and dull.
0: Uh, it's just not very entertaining. I mean, it might be more entertaining if they made it a bit more relevant. Maybe do a shopping challenge. Maybe great get fun up- to
1: do to drive, wouldn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, almost yeah. like the Sain Yong challenge. Great yeah. to drive one, but yeah. Do you want to watch it?
0: Yeah, no. no. Maybe get the husky out the back and sit down for a biscuit, and you know, get back into the car and go off and go to the drive-through McDonald's. A at, uh, at pay. Yeah, you know, I'm taking the Mickey. The answer is yes. There's a marketplace there at the moment. I think you're looking at the potential for yet another and yet another and yet another one-make series. At which point, I reach for the bottle of vodka and the shotgun. To be I can see
1: the first real proper because we've seen electric GT be a thing, and then trying to get that off the ground. But it's incredibly expensive to do unless you've got huge backing. It's a, you know it's a real task to get anywhere mm-hmm. near the likes of what Formula E's done. But I can see something like the Carrera Cup being one of the first major GT things, being all of that. Maybe, maybe. They've got the budget and the will to do it. Like, yeah. That could be where it starts.
0: That's an exciting proposition for everybody. Um, <laughs> the only <laughs> thing that actually sounds interesting at a Grand Prix meeting um, that's uh, been completely converted. Let's move on. Ouch. Yeah. You know what strive to survive?
1: Bring back Midland.
0: <sighs> yeah. You think, what, what, whatever happened to Chris Medland? I don't know. He's dropped off a cliff, hasn't he? Yeah, me, I don't know. Right. Dinesh Rumisar. Did Fiat completely can the 124 GT4 car? Good question. That was initially a one-make car that they then said they were going to do GT4 version of. But I think you're right. I think it's gone. And by the way, placing it on hold doesn't quite work because it's a model with a limited shelf life. So I suspect that is a program that is no more. It is indeed like the parrot sketch. Um, Josh Wallace asks, hi, guys. Any news on coverage of Super GT in English language in the UK? Assuming we go racing. If it is, it'll be on the um, awful... Yellow and Black website because they've got the rights to it, at which point I've stopped caring. There you go. Uh, Michael Kobka says, Me personally, it's a disappointment and continuation of the BS we've had. Oh, good. He's going to make a point here. This might be one for the Hammer Emporium. Soapbox soapbox. a lot. Uh, The goal seems to be maintaining independence whilst having convergence at the same time. covid 19 could have been a chance for hitting the pause button and finding a common new sports car formula that relevance to the public holds a future for the sport right so michael just so i've got this right i think what you're saying is at the point at which we descended into global chaos and a terminally damaging economic crisis the like of which the world has not seen since the 1940s at the end of february we should have bend everything we've actually been investing all the time in like hypercar and lmdh and start again think about that again for a minute at the point at which we have literally no resource and no income and that um well to give you for instance in the uk in april uh that the oems that are underpinning this investment um sold 97 percent fewer cars year on year in that month um At that point, we're going to give them a new set of regulations. I think you know the answer to that question. Think about that one again. I get it. I understand the frustration with things being a little more vanilla, a little more bland. I would urge everybody right now, get behind what's coming because that's all you're going to get. Get behind what's coming and find some positivity in your minds about this one because I keep coming back to this. If it works... If it works, then we could see top classes in the major championships that we all know and love uh, being at levels we've not seen for many, many years. At the very biggest races, we could be talking about significant proportions of the grid featuring in a top class. Are these cars ultimately as exciting, as quick, as mesmerizing technologically and in performance as an LMP1 uh, hybrid or a Group C car? No, they're not. But here's the point. If there's twenty or twenty five of them battling for position into the first corner, the second corner, and every other corner after that, we're not going to give a stuff, are we? Because then what we we'll get back to, balance of performance or not, is racing, and that is what we should all be desperate for now, like never before. I know I am. Uh, I, I, you know, I would, I would go and buy a Silverstone burger to go and watch a race. That's what. That's how desperate oh, I am. I'd that's go and buy low. Them. That's very low. Um, Cookie Monster says what have you both been doing to stay a little sane during these times same <laughs> um, have we picked up back up any old hobbies or even found some new ones he's been on a retro kick of sports car Indy 500 races since it's May after all what have you been up to uh, uh, I nearly called you MP again SK <laughs> what have you been up to oh, a mixture of
1: things um, lots of reading uh, I'm, I'm becoming more as I'm getting older I'm becoming more and more of a reader so i plowing for a load of books in my backlog on my bookshelf um everything from sport books to hardcore history books on the vietnam war Blimey, to sherlock Holmes. <laughs> um in a weird kind of way sometimes i read about very you know dep- almost very depressing subjects like you know Things Sports like the Holocaust, <laughs> because it makes you feel slightly better about your own life. That may sound really creepy to people, weird, but that's kind of the way I get through it. Watching a lot of Netflix, as I imagine literally everybody else on the planet is doing. Remember, um, you're to watch Netflix. Yeah, um, and uh, lots of exercise. I've run 137 kilometres since lockdown started.
0: Blimey. You're going to um, do I've one. run
1: literally every second day.
0: You're nearly, now nearly 140 kilometres from home. Blimey. <laughs>
1: yeah. he's, he's, um, I'm almost <laughs> at Knock Hill, Graham. <laughs> um, for me... You've had a quiet week, Graham, so tell us what you've been up to.
0: <laughs> you know that's different. Well, uh, I've um, tidied the office for the first time in about three years for starters, mm. trying to attend to some bits and pieces. Because I'm never here. Started to attend some bits and pieces around the house and the garden, which is looking tidier than it's done for quite a while. Spent some time with my wife. Um, walked the dog. Uh, did my back earlier this week, so I've, I've actually walked him for the first time in several days this evening. He seemed very relieved. I think he seemed, I thought I didn't love him. Um, dog and, is he is an excellent dog. Um, even,
1: if, even when he does eat the entire content. You of know the what? Friend, Here's the thing. You,
0: you are the only contributor to the Weekend Sportscast that's actually met Oscar the Husky. Please do tell them how fine a beast he is.
1: He's unbelievable. He is everything you'd want in a dog. He's like the ultimate dog. He is
0: he's peak dog. Peak dog. He is he's peak dog. He's, yeah. he's,
1: he's, I'd go as far as to say he's, he's one step above Andrew Cotter's dogs. And if you've not seen Andrew Cotter's dogs, oh, on Twitter, please do that like is the That is the best thing to come out on social media during the lockdown, hands this, down.
0: This is Andrew Cotter, the golf commentator, Scottish golf commentator commentating on various habits these two Labradors have got. And it is laugh-out-loud funny stuff. I doff my cap to you, sir. And like you, by the way, I've been doing some reading. I've been catching up with some books that are on my shelves that I've not really taken uh, the opportunity to read. I'm uh, I'm actually reading two in parallel at the moment. One is uh, Gordon Spice's autobiography, which is absolutely fantastic. The other one is Tony Southgate's autobiography. And rather bizarrely, the book I've got on the go in the house rather than The Office – is, is your Vietnam book the Max Hastings book? It certainly is. Yeah, I'm doing the same. There you go. There's a weird one. And much as I think Max Hastings is not the nicest of individuals, he does write a good history book. But there well, like you go. That. That's what we're up to. What's next? Uh, secondly, for both of you, uh, this is from Sampshire. How did you get into motorsport journalism? Was it something planned or an opportunity arose through personal or professional connections? Well, you can answer that one.
1: Uh, I kind of told this story last time out, didn't I, Graham? Is effectively a, a friend uh, who wrote wrote for the Essex Chronicle back in the day, it inspired me to get into motorsport journalism because uh, we used to go to the mall with him. And I'll name check him this time because I forgot to last time, and that is Chris Manning, absolute legend, true inspiration. I know he listens to this podcast. Um, he's a fabulous writer, and I do owe him you know, almost everything in terms of my
0: my my initial drive to get into doing this. Uh, there you go. And, uh, you know, the story wider than that was Stephen, uh, talents were pointed out to me at a, well, a young teenage age. When we met first time when you were 17, no, right? 15, F- 15. And um, Stephen came along uh, with a little bit of help from Nissan at that stage to mm-hmm. a race at Silverstone. First year of the WEC. Thank you very uh, much, Darren Cox. There you, are go. you Are you my career as well? There you go. And there's so many bills he's going to pay. Um, so, and then from there on in, um, from university and a successful trip to university doing sports journalism, uh, Stephen came to work full-time with me and has been with me ever since. And it's been an absolute pleasure. For me, uh, rapid fire trip through this. Opted not to go to university, went instead and did a professional Qualification in journalism. It was picked up by my local newspaper. Uh, long story short, that newspaper was bought out by um, a uh, a guy that wanted to, to go all the way up the ladder in uh, newspaper ownership. He did. Started off uh, the UK's first um, colour newspaper, national newspaper. Along the way, annoyed the unions, got himself into major industrial strife. That led to cutbacks. I was one of those uh, cutback. I went and did my parallel career choice working uh, in government PR for 20 years, was a government press secretary in the UK for 20 years. The terms of my working there meant that I could not work as a freelance journalist in any field. Uh, That was not permitted. Uh, The very week I stopped uh, at the end of the 1990s, I'd already hooked up uh, as a kind of uh, acquaintance to Malcolm Cracknell through his Sports Car World website, and within a year was doing some bits and pieces for Malcolm. Uh, we both moved on and did the TotalMotorsport.com uh, website in 2001 uh, with Sports Car and Touring Car Racing, and that uh, fiasco led us to the journey in 2002 to establish Daily Sports Car as the two of the four founding partners. Um, uh, I owe it to Malcolm. Simple as that. And uh, beyond that, uh, in beyond the sports car journalism bit, so I was a weekend warrior for many, many years, opted to leave my day job five years ago now uh, to do what I now do uh, full-time. As far as the other part of the story, uh, that's the broadcast part of the story, first man to ever, actually ever hand me a microphone, David Addison, doff my cap to him, um, as a bit of a guest in the uh, the the uh, trackside commentary booth for British GT championship races. Uh, First person to hand me a broadcast mic, John Hindoff at uh, Petit Le Mans in about 2005, I think, uh, and became something irregular a a year or two after that. Um, And I love it. It's as simple as that. I love it more than words can possibly say. And I hope that I and we and this part of the industry is not going to be Uh, something that suffers too badly when we get back to a commercial world. It's going to be very tough for just about everybody. And by the way, I know some of our rivals listen to this podcast. I'm thinking of you all, guys, whether or not, you know, you see yourselves as in competition with us. I don't want to see anybody suffer at the end of this. I want us all to actually work together for, you know, I know this sounds terribly pat, but a bit of a better tomorrow, that actually right now is when we should be working together, not against each other. I sort of find it sad that, you know, we're still professionally kicking the shit out of each other at a time when nobody's making any money, literally nobody. Uh, So for me to everybody out there that's listening uh, to this, who's in a position in this business, you know, to to think about the track forward. You know what, guys? Pick up the phone. You never know. We could all help each other here. Um, This shouldn't be about whether or not we get another 50 clicks here or there. This should be about whether or not we're actually back in those rooms uh, and telling good stories about what we hope is going to be a positive story about the future of this sport. That's my story. Ash. There you
1: go. Well, it's time for the third category of the evening, Graham. Let's go on to Weck Aslums, Elms and Akko. And we'll start with Stuart Hart, who says, uh, the WRT boss has suggested that LMDH will eventually be split into pro and am classes, uh, replacing LMP2 as we know it. Do you see this happening down the line, particularly when LMP2 looks into adopting hybrid?
0: Well, presumably, this is Vanson Voss. I've not seen that uh, comment from Vanson, but I tend not to agree with him, to be honest with you. Um, we've heard the same uh, suggested for LMP2. LMP2, let's not forget, has actually been extremely successful, certainly in Europe, um, and shows signs of recovery in North America. It's going to be a numbers game, isn't it? It's going to come down to just exactly what do these professional race teams require to survive and thrive and we don't yet know that either um but i if if it were me my view would be it's more likely to happen at lmp2 than it is lmbh i think mm-hmm. that's the more likely scenario that's where the crossover is required um how there much isn't...
1: appetite is there for privateer teams to step up and run in an AM class of LMDH? Because the cost is clearly going to be higher than it is for running an LMB2 uh, car. V-
0: very much so, without a shadow of a doubt. So, you know, you, if nothing else, you're talking about hybrid technology, you're talking about higher powers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the answer here is there's already a live debate about just what the shape, the future shape of the LMB2 regulations should look like and what driver uh, mixes should be allowed in lmp2 my guess is that is more likely to be an issue that impacts lmp 2 before it becomes an issue for lmdh the only point at which that would become an issue for lmdh if there's a massive demand or a significant demand rather for purely pro-am um uh, uh, outfits coming in so in other words if you were for the sake of arguing a ben keating and you wanted to be in the top class now actually i think ben would would not want to be in a pro-am form, and I think he'd want to do it as full pro. But, you know, would there be enough demand? Would there be enough of a cabal of support there uh, to actually get a pro, whole pro and a pro-am class in there? I don't think so in the first instance, but never say never.
1: Next up is James Counter, who says, in the DSC article about Toyota taking its LMH car to IMSA, it quotes someone saying that Le Mans was expensive at the end of the season because they manufactured lots of spares that they didn't need to use. Uh, do you think this would have been such an issue in LMH where presumably there won't be much, if any, updates between um, seasons? Uh, quite right, I think, James. Um, because there is a freeze on development to the LMH platform, uh, clearly if you've got leftover parts, you're going to be able to use them in the next season. So it's it's not going to be quite the same issue. Um, the only thing I would say is it's it's going to be the same thing uh, that LMP2 teams uh, that I know have experienced when it comes to the, the calendar changes. That it's easier to budget for a calendar year rather than a calendar that cuts across two financial um, financial years. So planning for how much budget you're going to need for the whole year is much easier than getting halfway through the season um, and then you know not you know, being a bit, Sort of cutting across two years. It, yes, yeah, I think it's, other, it's easier to get that figure in your head and, and sign it off early.
0: Yeah, the other thing is, well, of course, is Le Mans at the moment, there's different aero kits that won't be the case in the future. Mm. Um, so, the different aero kit, of course, if you're not used it at Le Mans, you're probably gonna have a different aero kit by the time you get around the next time. So, my guess is the number of parts they actually never used was probably pretty high because as know to their cost, you've got to plan for any contingency, uh, and that means over provision. Normally, not very often, a major team will run out of parts. Uh, so we will see uh, whether or not that does have a positive impact on the kind of budgets. What's next?
1: Don Gregory says, what are the chances of Ferrari getting involved in either Hypercar LMDH now that the new regs are out? Oh, who knows?
0: <laughs> it is the thing. I think the... It's it's all going Just gonna, believe it when you see it. Yeah, yeah. But it's all going The... the, the the potential is going to be determined by what happens in Formula 1. The the, the prospect here and the, the brinksmanship game that's being played by Ferrari is all about what happens with budget caps in, in Formula 1. If anything, I'd say this much. The outcome for Formula 1 makes it more likely that they'll do a parallel programme uh, because there clearly are going to have to be significant cost-cutting measures in Formula 1. And if Ferrari are saying this is, this
1: is surely the best time for a budget cap in Formula One, really?
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's inevitability. But if Ferrari are saying that, that's what predicates their decision on whether or not they what they've name checked uh, previously um, in releases to uh, the Formula One media are that they would consider uh, IndyCar and WEC. That's been dismissed by many as the the kind of brinksmanship that Ferrari's shown in the past. Hope not. If they are going to stay in WEC, and LMDH and Le Mans hypercar together prove to be a successful mix, if they want to stay in WEC, they might not have an option, uh, because there might not be a GTE Pro class in two or three years for them to go to. So I hope they go there, because I think that will raise the ante very, very substantially. Uh, Whatever you think of the Ferrari brand, here's the reality. Uh, It's got a whole lot of global support with people that aren't interested in anything else other than Ferrari. And that brings with it a huge amount of commercial QDOS, media QDOS, bums on seats, you name it. Um, I hope they come. I hope they come. I hope they compete. And I hope we don't get into too much politics around it.
1: Damien Peachman says, is there a DPR LMDH manufacturer that would be really serious about entering the WC full time with a multi-year programme?
0: Yes. Well, Porsche, with, we with certainly know 100%. But Porsche, we certainly know, have, have made ever even more positive noises about uh, doing it. The answer is more than you know. Okay, mm. um, this is one of those moments. Okay, would be dumb for anybody to download what they knew last week, last month, because things are going to change. Some things might change for the better. Some things will certainly change for the worst. And what we knew in February could be completely different by the time we get uh, to September. Uh, but in terms of where the interest is, the answer is more than you know, that there is not going to be a shortage. Uh, there's not going to be a shortfall of potential interest for both the major championships we're talking about here, which does mean that the potential when you get to those biggest races of the year, and that means the Rolex 24 for IMSA, and it means the Le Mans 24 hours for the WEC, the potential in terms of numbers and depth of that top class, even discounting the potential for customer cars, which is most certainly there, the potential is very positive, very positive indeed. So final use, I hope, of hashtag wait and see, uh, but... I think this is a prospect right now. We all need a a flag to fly right now. Flag to fly in Project Positivity this week is let's get behind this because nothing else is coming. And you're either going to be somebody who follows sports car racing and embraces this, albeit maybe constructively critically, or, you know, there's going to be nothing else for you to watch because this is, I'll be blunt, this is the plan that's going to go forward. And if this fails, I don't know what lies beyond it but I don't think it's going to fail. Uh, Daniel
1: O'Donnell says, Hi, Graham slash Stephen. Do you have any update on the uh, on the works of the main grandstands at Le Mans above the pits? If I recall, it was supposed to be partially demolished after the Classic in July. Is there any news on how this work has been impacted? Uh,
0: the, the answer is no, there isn't, uh, because they don't know yet when the start date is going to be for anything. The moment, clearly, the public plan is for September, mid-September, um, Uh, race for that i'm on 24 hours we've not yet got final confirmation of that because we don't know they don't know uh we may hear something in the coming days and weeks uh about what their plan c might be around that one uh there's all sorts of things that could impact on this remember that certainly was the works program that we'd shared with daily uh, sports car readers two years ago i think it is now that we got this and that was from public documents um around the agreed budgets and work plan. Um, the big change in that and the unknown quantity in that big change is the shift 2021 of the Le Mans Classic. Now, that has a positive and a negative effect. The positive effect uh, that that actually uh, has is that you potentially get a Le Mans Classic in the centenary year if they stick with the odd-numbered years. That's negative- so massive. Couldn't it just? The, oh. the potential thing you, they've then got to work around is a point at which in that work plan, and there will be a work plan somewhere, they would have had an empty paddock for a considerable period of time in 2021. That paddock will now be occupied by the Le Mans Classic. So um, there's an inevitability there'll be some changes here and there. I'm hoping what we're going to hear is some positivity from the ACO, but at the moment they've got their hands full with just getting the great race underway, and for that matter, the WEC and the LMS as well. So, we'll give them a bit of space on that one. I have asked the question. There's not yet been an answer. And the answer is I don't know what French is for hashtag wait and see, but that's more or less what we were told.
1: Travasaurus Traversor- Tra- says the global BOP to harmonize the overall performance of LMDH and LMH cars. Is this a hint um, that IMS is going to be adopting a better? auto BOP algorithm, uh, such as the one that's implemented by the WC and GTE outside of Le Mans?
0: Yeah, well, I, I, first things first, I'll absolutely endorse that the uh, the auto BOP for GTE has worked extremely well. And that comes as a bit of a shock, I guess, after, you know, the IMSA guys have been absolutely excellent with their BOP for quite some extended time and it just all went wrong that narrative changed very quickly it, it, very it? quickly so I, I mean again what i hope is going on here and i'm sure it is is you know wise minds around those tables swapping uh, their experiences good and bad and hopefully pulling the best examples together we've seen good, good examples of this before in terms of race management techniques etc uh, the safety aspects of racing certainly there's some really good uh read across between Uh, the teams in the major championships there. Um, And I I would like to think that that clearly it's going to have to be, um, you know, a degree of commonality of process. And you'd you'd like to think, wouldn't you, that they'll pull the best parts of all the systems they've got available. It's, it's going to be, I kind of suck it and see, um, uh, things yeah, like we might have anything to write about if they've not cocked something up, will they? <laughs> will we? Um,
1: well, so, they could this... just take everyone to Paul Ricard and get a Frenchman to just run, the, run all the cars where I could
0: I'm sure they'll present those cars in their optimum performance levels for that uh, balanced performance test and in no way will have gained the system, he said oh, yeah. with his tongue on his <laughs> cheek. Um, so, so, there you go. um one quick question here, by the way. Uh, Tom Prentgrass asks, what's the over-under on whether anyone other than Toto and Glickenhaus will go the hypercar routes? Ignoring that uh, Collis should be added to that. The, I think we're as reasonably sure as we can be now that Peugeot are going to be committing to a hypercar platform. Mm,
1: yeah, that's from that multiple not, people that I've spoken to, that's yep. what
0: I've heard. So they are not going to go LMTH, that we think Peugeot will be going down the hypercar route. If you look at the story that Stephen wrote for... Uh, DSC and for dot yesterday that absolutely mentions that uh, that it looks to, to us at the moment and the multiple sources we've now spoken to is that Peugeot have committed to hypercar. Will that mean that Peugeot decided like a crack at a couple of the big races in United States? That could be interesting, couldn't it? Uh, we've Good seen Peugeot. Well, we've seen Peugeot at Sebring, of course, and winning Sebring. Um, you know, in the days before the WEC, um, might they fancy a crack back with whatever? Beast they bring out into the new regulations that could be a very interesting moment, but that will mean that IMS will have to agree to that happening.
1: Here's a random trivia moment for you, Graham. Has a Peugeot ever uh, raced at the Rolex Twenty Four in any form? What do you reckon?
0: Hmm, it's raced in the Classic Twenty Four.
1: What with the like Nine O Five or something?
0: But uh, the Nine no, no No the, the Nine O Eight raced this year at the Classic Twenty Four, didn't oh, it? Did it? Wow. Yeah. He got punted off by Pescarolo. <laughs> oh,
1: that's it.
0: I think. Uh, a I, th- I think flash. did it not come come back and win the race? I've certainly seen in car footage of side to side contact. It might have been with Richard Bradley. Sorry, Rich. Um, and uh, the Peugeot got a little bit squirrely and was fired off uh, to the infield, but rejoined. Uh, the, the 908 number no, no, certainly did not um, no. race there. The 905, I'm pretty certain, didn't. The V10 cars never raced the Rolex like 24. And they would be the only ones I'd have thought that did, that would have the opportunity no to Peugeot do No Peugeot
1: engine in DP, was there? There's been no,
0: no. Peugeot GT cars, really. And so. didn't race there with the Peugeot engine. I'm sure they didn't. But uh, answer to a postcard, too. No, you're wrong, Goodwin, you damn fool. Um, at the Twitter address, if I'm wrong. But I don't think a Peugeot has ever competed in the Rolex 24 hours. Has competed in the Super in 12 hours. Has done very well there. Has competed at Petit Le Mans. Has done very well there, too but uh, not, I don't think, at the Rolex 24 or in the pre-unification um, days. Mm. Good question.
1: David Schutt says, uh, what kind of work gets done during a design study such as what Porsche is doing at the moment with LMDH?
0: Well, what they're going to be doing is a kind of concept. Uh, it's a project concept. So effectively what it means is what what money is it going to take us to get the massive world domination that Porsche will expect from a program where we're spending more than tuppence halfpenny. Joking aside, it will be looking at the regulations that they've will got at that stage in as much detail as possible, looking at what they've already got on the shelf in terms of relevant componentry, uh, in terms of the uh, particularly the engine they'd be looking to use, and I believe that Porsche are very clear about the engine they would like to build their LMDH around, I'm as sure as I possibly can be, uh, short of the board turning around and saying, are you mad? We're not going to spend anything on motorsport. I'm as sure as I possibly can be that they're as close as anybody to saying yes to a global WEC programme for LMDH. Uh, and I'm pretty certain that uh, you know, our friends at Toyota and beyond are expecting we're going to get Porsche back in the top class. What's involved? Will there be a concept, i.e. a design? I'm pretty certain that someone will have got the crayons out. Uh I'm pretty sure. it look
1: rather like a 919 tribute. Uh I'd
0: be I'd be absolutely amazed if it's not white, black and red reaches again for Vodka and Shotgun. Um, but it it's it'll look very Porsche. I I actually like the look of the 919. Mm. Um, I think actually the earlier iterations of 919 were were more Porsche-like than the later ones, but uh, that's when efficiency takes over. Damn it! Uh, but uh, the the answer is they'll have done quite a lot of work. What they'll know is what they believe the performance they can get is out of the cost that they're prepared to commit to it. That's we go as
1: far as like little wind tunnel models and stuff no, like that.
0: No render, maybe maybe a little bit of a uh, little bit of computer modeling, but I don't think we'll have got to wind tunnel models yet at all. Nowhere close.
1: Stuart Hart says, uh, A, do Porsche make public statements like this without an intention to compete? And B, to Porsche see LMDH as an addition to their uh, customer lineup, something close to the RS Spider rather than the 919?
0: Uh, the answer for A is you'd have thought not, is the honest answer. They've been very, they don't want to embarrass themselves by pulling out of anything they've not entered. It sort of looks like they're running away from potential competition. Um, but again, it does come. I'm sorry. Again, with the proviso of things can change in these extraordinary times. Secondly, do they see, us in addition to their customer department lineup, I would be surprised if they didn't commit to that at the very least in year two. It may be that what we we could well see from a number of these uh, these companies is year one we keep it to the factory, year two we go elsewhere. As I said earlier, if they decide that what they want to commit to is a um, wC program it does give them the potential to actually offer a kind of a bit of manufacturer support rather than a manufacturer run uh, parallel program in imsa um, or indeed additional cars for customers so I would be actually surprised if we saw terribly many of these uh, these cars not with at least the potential for customer sales i 'd go further i 'd be disappointed if actually we went down the routes that we 've seen for a few. Uh, manufacturer programs where despite the fact that that technology and those budgets are real world accessible it's made clear that that's not an interest that's welcome that would be a massive massive wrong turn i think and i genuinely think that's the one part of this cocktail that the uh, the current crisis has served well it's more of a prospect now that that will have to be part of the uh part of the package mm.
1: What the world needs right now, Graham, is a Felbermayer liveried -Liveried Porsche LMDH car. That's what we need. Go for it. (laughs) Malcolm Malcolm Scopes says, are the regulations close enough for someone like Janetta to build a car under the hypercar regulations, but would it be technically similar to an LMDH, therefore getting around the full manufacturer's rule in LMDH?
0: Well, the answer is anybody can do it as long as they can meet the budget. Would it be Janetta? No. Um, I think the uh the blind fury at Genetta about the way in which LMDH is for uh, chassis manufacturers has been reached, um, you know, cannot be underestimated. They they are feeling, I think, rather let down uh by the process. Uh but uh the answer in general is yes, anybody could do it. Um yeah, it's something that's been mentioned about Ferrari if actually what you're looking for is a in with your own chassis? Well, there you go. There's a hypercar regulation. See if you can make that one work. And with the the, the change in the way that the um, regulations have been now voiced to more or less match the kind of power train outputs, then they've got powertrains that actually potentially could meet those criteria. Uh, I think, let's put it this way, what we heard this week in no may, way makes it less likely that Ferrari could have a prospect of doing those big races. Does that is am I saying here that they're anywhere close to where Porsche are? No I'm not. What I'm saying is I didn't hear anything that gave any more reasons for them not to do it. Does that make that, mm-hmm. does that make kind of clear? Yeah, um, makes sense to me. I think it's it's it the, for me, the most encouraging part of the whole piece, it was the piece I tried to get across in the editorial we wrote later that day, um, yesterday uh, is that they've tried to leave the door as wide open as possible to as many different options as possible. And right now, that's an incredibly smart thing to do because there is no doubt in my mind that plans for a lot of things are going to have to change, and in some cases change quite radically. Giving yourself the flexibility of thought and action is the only smart move right now.
1: Uh- Jeffrey van der Ketteridge says, why can't the DPI's compete alongside uh, rebellion like LP one non-hybrids? It'd be great for the last one on under the current regulations uh, to give them a the goodbye that they deserve. Um, it's quite simple. They're just not quick enough They're to not. be able to race. They, they um,
0: get because, what was the lap time difference? Well, yeah. we have, Sebring is the obvious one. We've, we've had back-to-back races, similar track conditions. Uh, uh, what was the difference in qualifying times?
1: About three seconds between, between... The, quickest, the quickest DPI and the quickest uh, P1 Privateer.
0: Yeah, so that's Rebellion versus, the, was it the Caddies at uh, Sebring? I think it uh, was. I think it was the Acuras. Oh, right, um... okay. So three seconds there, which means probably six seconds at the MOM. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so work that out over, over a stint of, say, what, 12 laps. That's, a, that's over a minute in a stint. Which means three stints in your lap. Yeah,
1: could, could you imagine though if they did try and do that and the success handicap came to play? Well,
0: the answer is it's a great idea. The only way that I think that that could actually happen is as a standalone class. And the reality here is there aren't enough cars. You know, mm. there are not enough cars in the DPI uh, formula to make that worth its while. You know, you could. It yeah. year
1: like this, though, with them bolstering well, the grid with you know, if, six, six DPI's, if they could do it. Well,
0: do you know what? You know, if you wanted an invitation in the class, I'd welcome it. I think that would be awesome. It is the be creative, there. isn't it? It is time to be creative. It would be great to see it. But, you know, I'm hoping that whatever woes we get at Le Mans this year will be the last time we see it. And by the way, it's it's the right year, potentially in terms of numbers, potentially. It's the wrong year in terms of logistics because that, in no small part, is why Porsche mm-hmm. aren't doing it. Of course, the DPIs, with the exception of one master that sits in Multimatic for as their test car in the UK, the DPIs are all in the United States, mm. and that, that's potentially a really big problem.
1: Miggins Motorsport says, uh, "Hey, do you consider the European ladder system with the LMP and GT classes to be a success? Have we seen talent come through the likes of the Le Mans Cup to the W.C.?" Uh, which I hashtag me personally believe shows that it's worked and has therefore been successful.
0: Uh, 100% yes. has been, absolutely. I, I, I like to field another one of these kind of points, which is you've got to look at one of the, one of the, uh, the auto entries that's been often criticised for the Le Mans 24 hours is the, the fact that we get the GT winning team gets an entry, an auto entry for the Le Mans 24 hours. Up until this year, every single team that has won the Michelin Le Mans Cup, has gone on from GT3 in the Michelin Le Mans Cup to going to GTE in the European Le Mans series. And in a couple of cases have moved on to GTE in the FI World Endurance Championship. That's success. OK, mm. that's what that looks like. What, what, what does that mean? It means that those teams are developing and investing more in the championships and more in the, in the core products. And by the way, uh, f- in many cases, still retain a presence in the lower leagues as well. Uh, great example of that. Uh, first champions were TF Sports, uh, and God, look at what Tom Ferry is doing now—it's world domination, really. I thought he's seeing at home, isn't he? Yeah, for probably. Well, at least at the moment. Uh, but <laughs> so aren't we all sitting at watching Netflix? Uh, but the answer is yes. It most certainly has a big fan of what LMP3 has done for that marketplace. We, you know, happily, certainly in Europe, able to turn around every year since LMP3 and reports that this team or that team has stepped up to LMP3 in the uh, European Le Mans series or indeed LMP2 in the European Le Mans series and in some instances further than that. So the answer is uh, that pyramid is working and continues to work and long may that be the case. It's
1: working amazingly well when you consider that the... the very top of the ladder where you've got the LMP1 factory teams has shrunk so the amount of yep. seats that are available to aspirant P2 drivers and P3 drivers has gone down in terms of well, factory contracts it's still guess, massive numbers I guess look at it
0: this way go and have a look at the uh, what, what certainly was still, was published as being the European Le Mans series grid for this year and the was it knocking on for 20 LMP2 cars and go and have a look at that list and judge for yourselves how many of those teams started in LMP3 and the answer is one heck of a lot. And by the way, not just the teams, but the drivers. So a number, a good, goodly number of the drivers that uh, come through now and are, you know, pretty well top of the shop in terms of the prime aspect of LMP2 in Europe, have come through the LMP3 ladder in pretty short order. Remember, LMP3 only started in 2015. And um, ask yourself where would we be without those teams and those drivers? And the answer is not with 18 or 19 LMP2 cars on the grid, that's for damn sure. So the answer is that has worked. And for that matter, so has the LMP2 formula. Uh, And I will admit to being surprised by the numbers we're getting with the budgets that are out there. Uh, It's a very large amount of money indeed to run these things, and I hope we can maintain that through and beyond the current crisis. What's next? Chris uh,
1: Alphaby says... How much do you think the hundredth anniversary of the Le Mans 24 Hours will help to get manufacturers to commit to LDH, similar to what I would have assumed happened with GT1 in 1998?
0: Uh, well, I think the the answer there is any big event is a big draw, and you know we wrote a short piece on the back of a TV interview that uh, Philippe Signor, who's the team principal of CineTech Alpine. Did with LMTV in the start, the South Rees and Bruno Van der Stick talking to Philippe as well as to uh, Pierre Fion about a range of matters and a couple of the drivers as well, and making it clear that certainly their success in LMP two has been a key part of them getting some traction, uh, some interest in LMDH, and I would love to think Alpine, of course, being a sub brand of Renault, uh, which is by the way part owned by the French people. Um, Uh, I would love to see them going head-to-head, LMDH, uh, Alpine versus Le Mans hypercar Peugeot, and hopefully a gaggle of other manufacturers as well, for what I've said before on the show, could be the biggest race in the world in 2023 in uh, Le Mans for the centenary of the great race. It deserves Um, to
1: have a massive grid.
0: it it? It deserves to be massive in every single way. It's an astonishing event. Um, it's it's a pain in the ass to work but my god it's an awesome event and um, I hope that both those factories deliver on the potential for programmes to come forward because I think that could be a massively significant breakthrough for that race in its home marketplace and beyond. Um, I don't expect those two factories to be alone if they commit
1: The last question for for this category is uh, from Daniel Summersgill, he says uh, do you think it's likely that we'll see Cinetech Alpine or Aros and lmdh DH? Me personally, but hashtag me personally, it could be the only way to keep these brands in the WZ once the new LMP2 regulations come in.
0: Uh, let's put this right. I don't know what's been said to the brands concerned. I'm hearing sniffs that they're being told that if they wish to continue in LMP2, it's going to be a rather more expensive prospect. So, in other words. I think there's a bit of strong-arming going on there to persuade them to see whether or not they can make the leap to the next level of budget for LMDH. And I think that's probably sensible is the honest answer. Um, I think if you're giving people a kind of cost-capped, manufacturer-attractive formula, um, you've got to be very careful about allowing anything other than absolute boutique um, brands, arguably Iris is one of those, uh, into um, a lower-league formula. Uh, Alpine, I don't think there's very many excuses for Alpine, to be honest with you. They've been, they've been there for a while now. It's Renault. Come on. You know, it's a it's a huge company. And the reality there is, to be blunt, if Peugeot can afford it, Renault can afford it. And I'd love to see Alpine stepping up. Aurus, that's a bit different. You know, you're talking selling cars in the dozens rather than the multiple hundreds a year. Um, they are an aspirant brand. But do they have the kind of budgets that would support LMDH? Well, might have to get Roman Rusilov in a corner and uh, verbally beat him with sticks and find out whether or not that might be a prospect. I do know it's been looked at. Um, I think, knowing Roman, he might find it more than vaguely amusing, uh, the prospect of taking uh, a a LMDH car badged with the name of the Russian uh, president's limousine to the relics 24 Hours of Daytona. That could be interesting, couldn't it? The uh, Aris...
1: is so... When well, I spoke to Ryan enough about the AORUS programme, there is such an appetite oh, for yeah, that yeah. brand to have a story well, which basically they says they're taking on the world. They
0: love it. It's proud. You know, why wouldn't it be proud? You know, but, you know we, may, we may see Russia through the kind of media, media eyes and the politicised eyes that were presented to us. But he's Russian. You know, of course he's proud. But think about this for a moment. Think about this just for a moment. AORUS. The Russian president's limousine taking on, at Daytona, on the high banks, Cadillac. The US president's limousine.
1: Putin's limousine manufacturer wins the 100th <laughs> Le <Mans. laughs>
0: Oh, dear me. Okay, that's the end of that. And as we enter the 15th hour of uh, this uh, this can uh, weekend oh, special. 15th. Oh, the 15th hour. That's the thing We've in Montcarn,
1: to... you just There's no concept of time anymore. We could have been I, in for I days. Have no so I, idea. I have
0: no idea what day or indeed what month it is. Uh, we're going to go on to fun. And I'm going to serve a few of these ones up. We've just got a, a neat and uh, tidy group here. Um, James Counter says, which program did you initially dismiss, dismiss as fantasy but actually made it? I've got one here. You got anything you could think?
1: Well, oh, you go for it and I'll have a thing while you, while you
0: talk. It's a bit cheeky, and I'll, I'll apologise before I say it. It's a bit cheeky. We have had, we didn't do it this year for logistical reasons, but we have had a history of trying to be funny on April the 1st. And you may remember, I think this may be two or three years ago, I had a bit of a prod at um, our American colleague at uh, Sportscar 365 and ran a story that said that we had purchased the rights to sports car 366 and that would henceforth uh, rigorously legally defend our rights to publish uh, breaking and exclusive news stories on the internet about endurance sports car racing on February the 29th every four years. Do you remember that? I am mm-hmm. proud to say that within I think it was 90 minutes of that story going up that that web domain was purchased I think we all know by who. Um, so I'm proud to say, sorry, John, I cost you money there. <laughs> um, but indeed, John has branded his um, his uh, content at Sportscar366 for the last two um, the last two leap years, um, and I think he's had a little bit of corporate memory loss in that he's not credited us for having the initial idea. So there you go. That's a fantasy idea that became reality.
1: But well, well, he's talking about programs, though, Graham. I think you've got the wrong end of the stick here. It's a great anecdote, don't get me wrong, but he's asking about race practice.
0: Everyone's a critic, aren't they? Everyone's ah, a critic.
1: Yeah, you I'm know, sticking up with James. He's asking a legitimate question. You give him a, you've done the politician's answer. You've you worked in government, right? What's... what's
0: what, OK, let's think about a... Pro, um, not that many, you know. There are not that many...
1: You can tell, can't you, when you're sitting there at a press conference and looking at something happening? But
0: oh God, yes. That's there a, are so that's many
1: times when you go, "This is not
0: happening." It's true, and it doesn't most of the time, or it kind of staggers out and shits itself at term one in a cloud of steam and a pool of oil, and it looks despondent. And they kind of push the remains back into the truck. You never ever see them again, ever. Um, there's been a few that have been like that, that have kind of staggered into reality, and then actual reality.
1: Be, be Aston Martin AMR one. Because when I first saw that car I thought, you what? I mean it kinda didn't make it, but it, it did race very briefly.
0: It did. I mean there's 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 other ones that you kind of think it's the other way around. It's things like the kind of Persia Hybrid Four. You know, that the the cancellation of that program came out of a clear blue sky. It's the opposite, if you like. But um well
1: <sighs> I genuinely thought the Delta Wing was never gonna happen. Oh really? Hmm uh, but I was a very, very young boy. <laughs> I, I was very, I uh, just, I didn't know what I was talking about, which is exactly why Darren Cox took me to go and see it and exactly why I've ended up in this position now because Darren Cox wanted to prove me wrong. I'm you
0: not get, saying that you, Delta wing only Darren, happened because Darren Cox did Delta wing out of spite. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> I'm saying it might have been a factor that he pushed the,
1: pushed it through the boardroom just, <laughs> just to hack me off.
0: Um, I'm struggling with that one. You know what? James, remind me next week and ask me that one again.
1: Did you think the z would happen? Yes. Okay.
0: I knew a lot about the z Probably more than this I knew on you. But oh, uh, really? yes, yes. Nice. So it's a shame it was as rushed as it was because it's an interesting concept. That neat little, little, little engine was uh, was a cracker. By the way, that's another one that features in our uh, Good Car, Bad Car. Hmm.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's it's an interesting question, certainly. Uh, Still Ryan, waiting for that Cobra GTE,
0: aren't we? Yeah, um, this is the sound of me not holding my breath. Uh, Brian, Ryan Turpster said, "I had a really important question inspired by one of the articles, but forgot it. Do you know what my question was going to be? It was going to be the most interesting question I submitted of the entire quarantine. He's not joking, which is frustrating. The is, is he is,
1: writing for this? This is clearly something no, 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 on no, my no, Viz page.
0: That, I'm going to give you a remarkable answer. The answer is." Yes, I do know what your question was going to be. Anyway, uh, you can submit that next week. Um, I'm not going to tell you what it is, obviously, because that ruins the fun. Sad boys to men, which is a brilliant handle. I'm wondering if you have any fun stories from races we wouldn't have heard in the broadcast or read about in articles. Both Marshall and you have told stories of bad hotels, interesting characters, hammer-wielding maniacs. Do you have any good human interest stories to share? Someone defying all odds super wholesome moments between teams, just something that made you go, wow, I love being here. One, and it's the latter part. Um, and you were there for this, Stephen. Well,
1: I was very uh, much part of it as
0: well. You were very much a part of it. Uh, again, regular listeners will know I love it when our motorsport family comes together in adversity. And sadly, often that happens when things go badly wrong. Um, And in this case, it was something that looked like it was going to go very badly wrong for, you know, a beloved member of our family. Um, Striker Racing, the then team principal, Dan Walmsley, uh, moved on and now beyond uh, McLaren uh, Motorsport. And he and his lovely wife, Hannah, had their first child, Esme, and Esme was not very well at all. And it looked Awful. It looked like it was going to be a very bad news story. Um, my God, did the WC paddock come together as one in supporting Dan and his family. Um, and it was quite inspirational, really. Everybody pulled together. There were positive messages. There was real love coming out the spa, wasn't it, when it was all kicking off? Uh, real love coming out that paddock in his way. And I'm utterly delighted to say that not only did Esme pull through, Esme is a joyful little bundle um that is now i think six years old. I gotta think be, she's yeah. I think she's got to be six years old, but that that you know what was a worrying weekend for anybody that's got blood running through their veins uh turned into something quite inspirational and, and that for me is honestly what it's about it's it's about the people and um it's that realization that much as we really care about the sports and about the industry that supports it, what we actually give a toss about are the people within it. And that experience will live with me forever of being part of actually making someone going through the worst times of their life feel just a little bit better.
1: The WC has good. so many different characters in it, but when well, you think... handed that board, we got literally every driver on the grid to sign it, and they none of them batted an eyelid.
0: No, no, no you know, and more to the point... Amazing. People, you know, much deeper in the teams were queuing to for the opportunity to do it as well. And, you know, and this is the point. It's, it's not just about the drivers or the team managers that the names you have heard. It's the faces we see, um, either in that paddock or in multiple paddocks. I joked around with a guy called Lee Penn, maybe a name that people have heard of before, that uh, I think I spend more time with Lee Penn than he does with his wife. And I don't mean that in a carnal way, Lee. That would be wrong. But, uh, but there are a lot of guys like that that's, I've got, you know, our, our, you know, uh, our uh, freelance uh, professionals in motorsport that spend all their time in multiple championships. And we see them a lot, whether or not that be generally in bars, fairly enough, bars, mainly bars, actually, exclusively bars, thinking about it, or garages or pit lanes. And these these people become friends. They're more than acquaintances. They're friends. You see them. You do care about them. You know, when they're having a bad day, you go and have a bit of a gossip with them. And. There's not one or two of them. There's 20, 30, 40 of them around the world. And it becomes a little bit like your social circle. So when there is an opportunity to actually give something back, people tend to embrace it because they know that 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 slightly gypsy lifestyle that we've all got, you know, um, never in the same time zone on two consecutive weekends, uh, does bring with it stresses and strains the like of which a nine-to-five office job doesn't. And having experienced both, I can tell you that is an absolute fact.
1: Mm. The story that that comes to my mind um, is a funny one, Um, but I don't know how much of it we can tell, Graham, and I'll let you be the judge of that. But I'll I'll give you the premise. Do you remember when we were at Bahrain? It must have been 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. And after the Bahrain meeting finished, we went into that garage for the, for that group of people that were testing that astonishing array of cars and had what I can only describe as one of the most mind-blowing hour-long conversations
0: I've ever had. How much can we talk about that? Not a lot is the honest answer, but you're absolutely right. This was was a, a, I I must admit, I I sort of knew what we were going to get um, because I knew the people involved here and about the projects that they're working on, the potential future projects that they might be working on and I gradually watched your jaw drop to the floor and down a couple of floors beyond really that. So you got the laptop out and started showing us some of those videos. And you were like, uh, wait, done, Yeah, there's this and that and the other and blah, blah, blah. I think the answer is there are always more layers to any business than most people know. And to be honest, the longer you're in that business and the more you meet and get the trust of those people that you're not going to immediately throw... Their secrets onto the internet the more you learn and the more fun it becomes and the reality there is there are so many cool projects that are happening behind closed doors now
1: never hear about
0: that you'll never hear about and sometimes you never will sometimes some of those will come forward and you might read about them in a you might see them they might race they might get to the road they might go to track days they might do all sorts of things but there's so much brilliance out there and despite the fact that those people are of world-class intellect and engineering brilliance, they're still human enough and enthusiastic enough to share those moments with you in confidence. And it's, it's a bit like having the key to the toy box, isn't it? It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Let's move on to the last couple. Um, Luke Birkin says he's been watching mid-'90s British GT. Can't help notice how one-offs and home-built cars in GT racing at the time. Nowadays, all cars seem to be factory built. Do you think there's still a place, for home-built, one-off cars? Do you miss having them? I 100% miss having them, okay? Mm. Watch for uh, Daily Sports Car this coming week. We are pulling together like crazy um, a themed week from Monday onwards on Daily Sports Car, and some of the cars you're talking about will feature in that themed week. I miss it terribly. The the likes of the Centura, which is this Jod V10-engined car that looked like a small uh, Group C car, a GT1 car for the British GT Championship. The original Ascari, uh, the RGS Mirage that made its way out to uh, Super GT later, which was a um, Chevy v 8 engine car with effectively Lamborghini Countach styling. They, the Quaif, you know, all sorts of absolutely mesmerizing stuff. And yes, I miss it more than words can say. The problem is, is it now sustainable? Um, I would love to see someone come forward with a deliverable prospect, with some finance behind it because it would need it, whether or not that was on. Um, my guess is they could probably make it work on a continental level and no further, which was almost a run what you brung championship, uh, but you know with higher aspirations than some of the production-based stuff we currently see. You know, the
1: uh, money you'd but, need to sink into a project to be able to get it to compete with the likes of some of these customer cars, particularly the, 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 the GT racing, is astonishing. That Look is at the, the ML5 program.
0: Yeah, right that, with that, the that is the problem now, is that your sort of baseline is a GT3, and they are astonishingly compl- uh, complicated and competent cars. And bear in mind, what you see from a GT3 car in most racing is a, albeit large fraction of its potential, because they're balanced down. Um, You know, I have only on very few occasions seen unrestricted GT cars testing. It's amazing. It's amazing. You look at the terms of the times these cars can deliver um, without the restrictions that are placed upon them. The actual potential in those packages is staggering. But uh, that's what you are effectively looking for, because unless you're going to count out in that competition, homologated uh, competition cars, you're always going to be putting your kind of resources up against that level of performance. So um, is it an era that's gone? I sadly think it is. I'd like to think that someone might try to do something. There are inevitably. I talked a little earlier about the um, Brazilian endurance series. There's one that, that does do sort of that. It's not ultimate performance. There is still a kind of a set of regulations around it. But yeah, I'd like to see someone do it. I mean, Am is sort of there, but not quite. ELM has uh,
1: the other point, entry, isn't it?
0: They do, they have the SPX class, but again, the performance parameters that apply there too. Oof. Maybe Pike's Peak. Maybe. Maybe that's the the arena. Uh, when you're you're into you know high quality kind of hill climb, sprint type championships. But uh, do I miss it? I hundred percent do. Do I see it coming back at a high level anytime soon? outside the, the kind of areas we just talked about, I, I'd say very sadly not. Final question for this Bangkok. It's hour 19 now. Yes, indeed. And the VA, VE Day special comes from Otto Fourth. Fantastic. That's a very
1: VE Day name.
0: Please don't. Now, don't go there. You had to go there, didn't you?
1: What?
0: Shame on you. What? Se- second time for this question you're being forced either through blackmail or from some other method of malice, that's quite dark, Uh, to be a partner in a sports car team with one of the following convicted felons. Who do you choose and why? Scott Tucker, John Paul Sr., Randy Lanyer, Henri Zogaib, or someone else I haven't listed. Here's the thing. Um, If they've been convicted for it, okay, and I've got to be a partner in the team, that means... They can't be convicted again, so any money they've got is their money. So it's whichever one's got the most money.
1: I I would say Scott Tucker on the basis that I want to be part of the runoffs program.
0: program. Yeah, fair enough. The one I'd say is Scott Tucker on the basis that it's not drug money, because they're scumbags.
1: And he's a Netflix star now, and Netflix is the future. I want to be involved in that. I want a bit
0: of that pie. You want a bit of Medland? Well, no, I don't want to
1: be a bit of a man. I don't want to be a one-season wonder like
0: Chris no true. No, 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 no. But um, the one th- then again, I've now thought again, but he did make kind of people in need miserable, so it's much the same, really, isn't it, as a drug dealer? Mm-hmm. It is spreading misery. No bollocks for a lot of them, actually. I don't That's want to deal with any of them. Um, no, I think I, I don't want to do business with them. I think I'd rather rot. Um, uh, I right. I'll watch them but the straight, straight answer is no I'm not going to be forced through blackmail or through some other method of malice you or not be be bullied, Graham. I won't be bullied Graham you, you know I won't be bullied I simply <laughs> won't uh, sad, sadly I'm afraid to my cost very often uh, as Stephen knows and he's chuckling to himself he knows I will never be bullied I've been punched more often uh, from uh, basically not putting up with being bullied than for any other reason not that I'm punched often I still um, not got the it, balls
1: to fire me though
0: Hmm. i will write down that. Just just write just write am I to for do this with next.
1: Fire six.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the so answer happy is COVID. uh which which scumbags would I actually uh, do business with? I won't do business with scumbags. It's a straight answer. Not even their PR. No. No. I have actually um I have actually been ripped off in business by people before it will not be happening again. Okay. So the reality here is I will not do that either through uh, blackmail or malice. They would be getting the great big finger from me and do your worst. You want to blackmail me, sunshine? You're going down with me. That's it. Uh, so I'm afraid I don't do bullying and I don't do being threatened, um, and, which is probably quite helpful, bearing in mind our mock sponsor, uh, our fake sponsor. Uh, that's us for the week. And I'm just having a quick look and see what the clock says. And the clock says we're.
1: seven hours.
0: We're ten minutes short of a two-hour show again here. Um, I'm going to say thank you again to you, Stephen Kilbey. It's very late in the evening now, and indeed, in fact, it's very early in the morning right now uh, here in the UK. Um, I'll say thanks again to Marshall Pruitt, who continues I'll to say pour. It to as well. He does Continues to pour out fantastic co- uh, 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 content in this four, now into our fifth year of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. Um, do have a listen, by the way, to his latest uh, in-car offerings. Uh, there's been three of them of late. The Greenwood Corvette is beyond awesome, slipping clutch or not. The, uh, the Lolo Aston Martin, which was uh, something you and I did at Monza last year, has been released now, and that is all kinds of awesome. And then you've got Zach Brown's Audi 200 Trans Am car, which is just a fantastic five, uh, five-cylinder turbo nutter bastard mobile that uh, just put smiles on your face uh, in lockdown put it on turn it up sob the neighbours they're not going to do it anyway yeah, um, they, can't come they certainly can't come round <laughs> if they can call the police um, don't be bullied uh, listen to those things um, enjoy your weekend uh, he's been Stephen Kilby he may still be employed next week uh, I've been Graham Goodwin we're going to say thank you again to Marshall Privett. to Bell much USA, to Toronto Motorsports, to the fine people at the Justice Brothers, and of course to Good tires I've been Graham Goodwin. This has been the weekend sports cars. We'll speak to you next week.